Good morning, sir. Morning, sir. That's us. We're going to bring Amanda to live and then that'll be like live. Okay. So, yep, sir, that's all the, the members in there. So, work away. Okay, um, so I'd like to welcome everyone to this morning. I think this is actually the 70th meeting of the of the Health Committee. Um, so I declare the meeting open now to the public online. And can I welcome all our members who are participating by video link and video conferencing this morning to adhere to the social distancing regulations. And I would like to remi remind all members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices. So... Um, no apologies have been received. Are members aware of any apologies this morning? No, thank you. Moving on then to chairperson's business. Members, the first item I want to pick up on is um, yesterday, quite quite late on yesterday, um, as a result of growing, I think, concerns around the Delta variant and the impact that that is having or could have here. I had requested via the clerk that the department would provide the committee with a briefing on that issue. Um, now, the department have come back to say that they're not able to provide a briefing. Uh, they could provide a written briefing by Monday. Uh, but to be quite honest, members, I don't think that's actually good enough, given the seriousness of the situation. Um, there are clearly um, significant issues now uh, developing out there in terms of the increasing spread of the Delta variant and the uh, the fact that the, the, uh, the variant it seems to be able to, uh, is, the, the vaccine is not as effective and there's figures of only 30% being quoted in relation to the vaccine, the one vaccine. So in light of that, members, would, would members be content that uh, I would work with the clerk to see if we could maybe put in an urgent oral question on this matter? Either, or my first option, my preference would be that, that would be put in on behalf of the committee. But if that's not possible, then I would put that in myself on behalf of the committee, because I do think we really need to, uh, to get some answers here. What are members' views be on that? Content, Chair. Thank you. Um, everyone else content with that action? Yeah. Chair. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Pam. Yeah, I was just saying, yeah, we on that request, and I think it's... Um, I don't think it is really good enough that, that, that there isn't um, anything available for us, given that I'm sure the health department will be preparing to brief executive um, members. I think they should have that information at their hand and should be prepared to share that with us as a health committee. So I would support your, your call. Thank you, Pam. And Carol? Yeah, I, I completely agree uh, with yourself, Chair, and just the comments that Pam made. Even if the, if the executive are getting that information this morning, I think soon after, uh, some information needs to come to this committee. Apart from it being a scrutiny committee, we don't need to find out what's happening through the mainstream media, to be frank. Um, and you know, I think it's a reasonable and it's also a credible question to ask about an update regarding this variant. Thank you. Paula, were you indicating there? No, chair, I was fine with the with the proposal. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, because I, I think it is it is valid that this committee would uh, would seek to to drill into the issues, have the opportunity to ask the department's questions in relation to the the uh, the dangers posed and the actions being proposed to deal with those dangers. 
So, okay, members, thank you for that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll work with the clerk on that and we'll come back to you. The second item in terms of church business I want to draw attention to today is on the, the, uh, the very, very important campaign that a number of members I know have been involved in this week around the attacks on ambulance staff. And I just want to say these attacks are an absolute disgrace and absolutely must be stopped. It is, it is totally not on that, that uh, health care workers of any, of any type or in any setting are attacked in the course of doing their job. Absolutely unacceptable. And obviously paramedics and ambulance staff out there are particularly vulnerable given they're first on the scene and, and often without support and without, without other people around. So I just, I just want to, uh, to, to, in the strongest possible terms, condemn those and urge everyone to take a zero tolerance approach to any type of attacks on medical staff. These staff, health and care staff, have stood up for this this society and this community right throughout COVID. They do it all the time, preceding COVID. And I am shocked to, to hear that there have been over 600 attacks in the past year on ambulance staff. Do members want to make any comment in relation to that? I know some of you probably did take part in it, but um, any other comments? Sure. Uh, Pam and then Carol. Yes, Chair. Um, absolutely agree with you. Absolutely horrendous. Um, and I, I don't know what's wrong with some people in our community that they think that this is acceptable behaviour. Any kind of violence is completely wrong and abhorrent. Uh, but I think on the back of, the, particularly on the back of the last year, um, to be attacking any type of healthcare worker is just obscene. Uh, so I would reiterate your call to condemn that uh, behaviour of some. Uh, and, and just I want to put on record um, my thanks and thanks of my party to those healthcare workers. Uh, who have done an incredible job, and they are so uh, greatly appreciated for all they have done, all they do in a, in a normal day job. But in particular, in this last year, they've had no respite, and um, I, I just think it's appalling that we're even talking about this as a subject. Yeah, thank you, and well said, Pam. I have Carol and then Paula. Yeah, completely agree uh, with what Pam has said and yourself have said. It's it's absolutely abhorrent. And sure, it's not just to spread this out, but we also need to look look at the attacks that have happened on our farm rescue service as well, um, over the particularly this year. I mean, I know in my own constituency when that happened, everybody right across constituency came out and condemned it, and rightly so. So I think it's really important that from this committee, our solidarity and our zero tolerance approach to anyone who's a frontline service being attacked in the course of their duty. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, absolutely. Paula and then Chiara. Um, thank you, Chair. I'd just like to associate myself with the, the comments of the previous speakers. Um, I heard on the radio, I think it was yesterday, that they were talking about coming out to consult on the body-worn cameras um, after summer recess. And I'm just wondering if we can continue to engage with the ambulance service so that we can provide support and engage with them around that proposal, because that sounds like a very sensible um, way forward um, that I would like to support them on. Yeah, and maybe maybe we should ask the uh, the the ambulance service to update us on that and and on any other measures uh, that that they're taking or any other concerns they have. Maybe we'll ask them to update us in, as a first step uh, on that as as a, as a written briefing, and then we can take it from there. Uh, Chiara, 
Thank you, Chair. And I too would just like to associate uh, myself with the other members' comments. I think we've seen over the last year our health workers on the front line ha have had such great commitment to care. Uh, and I too think it's absolutely despicable that they would have to endure any kind of abuse uh, for doing their job and trying to help. So just to associate my myself uh, and my party's thanks and support for, for our ambulance staff. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, the other thing I would like to, or one of the other things I would like to flag then for this week, members, is Curers Week, which is which I think I, we're all acutely aware of the 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 pressure that has been for even pre-COVID on on all of our curers, the pressures additional that were that were placed upon them as a result of COVID, and the fact that many of the services have not been restored. Um, daycare and respite continue to operate on an extremely restricted basis, continuing the pressure on those families. So um, I, I, I think members, we probably all agree that we want to see those services being reinstated as rapidly and as safely as possible back to them. And that, that I know the minister has committed to looking at a scheme whereby jurors can receive some sort of a one-off COVID recognition payment. Um, it wouldn't by any means cover the additional expense, but, but by way of recognition, and I would, I suppose, urge the minister to continue to progress that as urgently as possible. Chair. Um, yeah, go, uh, yeah. the other thing I want to flag just before I come to you, Carol, is that to, to flag up and just to remind members that we have an agreed motion coming to the Assembly on Tuesday in relation to the support for carers, and I look forward to that debate. So, Carol, go ahead. Sure, sure. It's just, you know, I'm seeking advice on this, but I, I did read with alarm um, in, uh, on social media about a, a report from the Detail TV regarding the department's handling um, over the uh, residents being re relocated from Clifton House after a COVID outbreak. Um, so you might want to take this under um, AOB. I'm just leaving it with you, but I do want to raise some concerns, even just about terms of reference. So I'll just leave it there and take your gains. Okay, we will. Yeah, we'll come back to that in AOB, Karen. Thank you. Um, Paul, is your hand up again there, or was it up from previous? Up from previous. Thank you. Um, and another item that is that is being flagged up this week and a very important item as well, and therefore I want to mention it here in committee this morning as well, is Infant Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, and we have received and we have some correspondence in there in relation to infant mental health that we will be uh, discussing later on. But um, just just to say that, that you know, that's where that's where support for mental health starts and, and where it needs to start, even even. Prenatal, I, I think, is 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 a crucial stage, um, and and where a growing awareness of how important that all is, and how those early years are are vital, important uh, opportunities to to uh, make a difference at, at that early stage. So, okay, thank you for that. Um, two other things, then, members. First of all, um, I want to uh, highlight the fact that Jonathan. Buckley and Pam are both, I believe, going to be this. This will be their last attendance today at the meeting. Um, I want to. I want to thank first of all, I suppose, Jonathan. Um, in terms of he came into the committee at a very, very difficult time. I think uh, we were all impressed by how quickly he, he grasped the issues and his contribution to the committee. And I want to thank Jonathan very much for his contribution to this committee during during his time on it, and to wish him well in his future roles. Uh, whatever they may be within his party and uh, 
to uh, I, I'm sure he will retain an interest in health and in the issues that, that we have uh, worked on and fought for and all of that over the past over the past time. Um, and finally, in chairs business, then I want to just um, also thank very very much and extend my deep appreciation to Pam Cameron for her work as deputy chair on this committee. I have to say Pam's contribution has been at a, at a very difficult time immense. I think we have worked, the entire committee I think has worked very well and I think Pam has played a leading role in relation to that. I am very conscious this morning of some of the issues that, that Pam and I particularly dealt with at, at times. One of, two of the first meetings that we did was the first one I think was with the, the victims of the contaminated blood scandal. Yeah. And I, I think we're happy to, to report that there has been uh, measures, significant measures taken in the meantime to support that sector. And, and I think we all welcome that. And also the second meeting that we did was the soft update organ donation meeting with the McGowan family, with the Heist family. And, um, I, I think, I think what I would ask Pam just to say a few words, but I think we, we certainly would hope that that will be progressed as a matter of urgency. That, that too is something that, but in, in personal terms, Pam, I have to say you're, you've supported me. I couldn't have asked for, for anything better in terms of the support and, and how you worked with me at what was a hugely challenging time for health across our community. I think that was a significant and a hugely important contribution. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and do you want to say anything, Pam, or indeed Jonathan? Um, but I'll go to Pam first in relation to that. Um, thank you, Chair, for your very kind remarks. Um, yes, I'm a little bit sad that this is my my last uh, meeting today. And as you say, um, it is, it's been a very trying year. Um, it's certainly been uh, the most difficult, uh, I think, year in my 10 years in this assembly uh, in terms of workload uh, and uh, just pure stress around the whole COVID situation. I think it's been very difficult personally and professionally for for many people and um, Emily is very human also and have family members and, and um, worries and concerns around COVID and everyday life and so this year has been particularly difficult I think for everybody and certainly I, I have certainly felt uh, that pressure as well but it, it has been a real privilege to work with you Colin, as chair and indeed all of the members of the committee I, I feel like we have been a real uh, team um, and I think we have uh, proven you know the real value of devolution in in Northern Ireland and I think we are also the proof that you know that we as different parties come from all different backgrounds and all have all different ideologies but we can work together and work together very well for the betterment of the entire community and that's something I'm very proud of um, and, and I've really enjoyed my time on, on committee um, and I've enjoyed working with yourself as chair and with um, everybody um, that uh, is currently on committee and indeed past members who have even had little in the past. I'll, I'll have to give a shout out wherever he is. I know he wouldn't want to be missed out. I'm usually telling him off, but um, and, and I will miss the committee uh, for sure. Uh, and I wish the committee very well in, in all that goes forward. And yes, indeed. I very fondly remember those first couple of meetings, especially because we didn't have very many physical meetings before they all came to a halt. That was the first thing. And it was just lovely to meet little Dahi, um, such a cutie. And I, I really do hope and pray that that little boy gets the heart that he needs um, uh, in the very near future. 
And I think that probably a nice way to end this commentary is just to appeal to people to please have that conversation um, as families and friends. Make your wishes known. Get yourself on that organ donation register, regardless of, of any new legislation coming forward. That's the most important part of this is to have that conversation so that, you know, if something really terrible happens within your family, actually that some good can come out of tragedy. So I just want to finish up with that. So thank you, Chair. Thank you, Pam. I can't top that, so I will say nothing more on that. That's first class. Jonathan, um, do you want to say yes. something there as well? Thank, thank you, Chair. Can I thank you for your initial comments? And um, can I say it's been an absolute honour and privilege to serve on the Committee for Health of the Northern Ireland Assembly. I don't think anybody that sits in this committee can probably fully appreciate uh, that, or anybody sitting outside the committee, sorry, can fully appreciate the difficult issues that come before it. Uh, health is an issue that affects everybody, especially in the midst of, of COVID and, and our differing views as to how that approach should be handled, etc. But at the heart of it all, I believe everybody was um, working towards what they felt was the best interest of all, of all our people. So we have, there's huge challenges there, uh, particularly around health waiting lists and indeed also on a, a pay tribute to the committee in the way that they've dealt with and approached the, the issue of mental health as well. Because one of the most... Um, I suppose one of the, the most heartening aspects of the committee was those cross-party motions in the Assembly where I felt that uh, the committee really did show what a, what a committee can do if it pulls together and, and work together. So I would encourage that, that same approach. I've enjoyed my time in the committee. I came in at a difficult time, as you've highlighted. But as members will know, uh, I, I'm not going away to coin, coin a phrase that there's some very important issues on health that I will be continuing to keep an eye on and also hopefully continue those conversations with members on this committee uh, because it, it's it's so important that going forward as we, we reach to what, what we hope can be a transformation of our health service that we indeed also uh, strive to get that accountability in the system as well to ensure that not only our patients feel safe in the in, in our health service, but indeed also uh, those wonderful professionals that serve uh, in our health service are also given that dignity and uh, and respect that they deserve. So thank you very much, committee, and I'll leave it at that. And just also sorry, I forgot to admit, also it's been a privilege to serve with Pam Cameron as vice chair. Uh, I think we, we made a good team and uh, there's no doubt we'll still contribute to the health, wider health debate. So thank you. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. And thank you, members, for that. So I will uh, I'll move on then to draft minutes. Item three there, members, is draft minutes at tab 3.1 on your pack. Are members content with the minutes? Yep. Thank you. Members, there is one item arising this week, and that is that at last week's meeting we considered SR141, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Regulations 2021 Amendment Number 5, Regs NA 2021. The committee agreed at that point that it was content with the rule subject to the report of the examiner of statutory rules. The examiner has now reported, and her report is included at tab 4.1 of the table pack. The examiner has outlined an issue with the drafting of the rule and the need to include or a relevant hospitality venue after a relevant place within that drafting, but that the department will make an amendment at the earliest opportunity. So are members content with that approach? Yep, thank you, members. Okay, members, so moving on to our first briefing this morning, which is in relation to the uh, Food and Feed Hygiene and Safety Miscellaneous Amendments Regulations. It's an SL1, 
and uh, Food and Feed Hygiene Safety Miscellaneous Amendment Regulations 2021. I refer members to the papers at tab 5 of your pack and in particular to the clerk's memo which is at tab 5.1. Can I advise members please admit that officials from the Food Standards Agency are here today to brief us on the provisions of the proposed statutory rule. So I would now like to welcome by video link uh, and to bring up into the spotlight Miss Maria Jennings who is the uh, director here of the Food Standards Agency. Can you hear us okay, Maria? I can indeed, Chair. Can you hear me? Yep, we hear you there, Maria. Thank you and you're welcome. I'll come back to you in a second. And we're also joined by Miss Elvira Diaz-Garcia, who's Head of Operational Policy and Delivery. Can you hear us, Elvira? I can indeed. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we hear you, we hear you there, Elvira. Okay, so um, thank you, and I would I'll go back then to yourself, Marie, if you'd like to outline how you would take the how you lead off on the briefing, and then we can maybe come to some questions from members. Thank you very much, Chair, and good morning, members from a rather overcast Newcastle this morning. Um, as the chair said, we're here to bring you um, a, a briefing on the. Food and Feed Hygiene and Safety Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. I just want to give you a brief overview of this statutory rule and then we are very happy to questions. This SR is very technical in nature and it includes amendments to update references and also to correct some minor drafting errors in four existing Northern Ireland SRs. The SR itself is subject to draft affirmative procedure because one of the provisions relates to the collection of fees and charges. And just on that, um, that particular provision updates legislative references on fees and charges that arise from unplanned official controls following the detection of non-compliance in respect of food and feed uh, official controls. It's a continuation of a provision that we already have in law um, and it just relates to non-compliance with food and feed safety requirements. And just to remind um, members that that can vary very considerably. So it can be very minor, just one localised food hygiene risk in an individual business. And that can be resolved very effectively in, in the normal way that we resolve these things. But it also can relate to a major food safety incident that might involve many establishments across a number of jurisdictions and can only be resolved through um, several authorities working together in maybe a number of countries. So it can go from the very small to the very large. And this SR is us to um, recover the cost of those follow-up actions um, where business operators are responsible for no, non-compliance. And that otherwise would be paid through the public purse. It's very important to say that there is a high level of compliance with food safety from Northern Ireland businesses. So it's very rare that we would want to use this provision but it will continue to be an important provision, providing essential enforcement support for district councils, DARA and the FSA, should it be required on, uh, 
very rare occasions. So the main objective of this SR is to amend the official food and feed control regulations, the OCR, um, and regulations made under the OCR since November 2019. And as you know, the OCR sets out a framework of controls that competent authorities have to carry out, like inspections and sampling at food businesses to verify compliance with agri-food legislation. And this has applied, as I said, in Northern Ireland since December 2019. Most of the provisions of the OCR um, and the regulations made under it clarify and simplify existing requirements and, and have introduced a more risk-based approach to controls, which we're very much aligned to. So existing enforcement arrangements in Northern Ireland are already aligned to those requirements. The, this SR um, ensures the competent authorities in Northern Ireland will continue to have the powers that they need to undertake official controls and to verify compliance with food and feed safety law. It also, as I said, amends a couple of minor um, drafting errors in other regulations. Just to say, just to, uh, to say a word on stakeholder engagement, um, we had a full consultation on the OCR, and that ran from August to October in 2019. We had eight responses to that consultation, um, broadly aligned to um, and supportive of the proposals. And then um, a consultation on this SR took place between April and May, and just finished on the 23rd of May. We only received two responses to that um, consultation, both supportive of the proposal. So in summary, members, this proposed SR is technical and is required to update our existing SRs. It's subject to draft affirmative procedures. And if the committee is content with the proposal, the motion will be submitted to the business office to secure a date for assembly consideration. Thank you very much. Sure. Very happy to address questions. Okay, thank you. Um, I suppose the first one for me is that the paper, the, the briefing paper there advises that the proposed legislation parallels equivalent requirements uh, in England, Scotland, and Wales, while also following EU rules, and therefore the position in the south in the South Ireland remains the same. So does that mean there is no divergence at present? That that everyone is on the same in the same position? Absolutely correct. That is the, that is the position. We're all in the same place. No okay. divergence. Okay. And in relation to the briefing or the consultation that you indicated, the earlier consultation in 2019, where you had eight responses, eight or nine responses, broadly supportive. Um, what were the what were the issues being flagged with the ones that weren't broadly supportive, uh, and have those been addressed? Um, all the, um, I think the difficulty that um, that was highlighted was um, that we were a little behind England, Wales, um, and um, Scotland. Uh, so um, just it was just a, a, um, a reminder for us to, to move swiftly to do this work that we need to do now. Okay. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm going to go to members there. At this stage, I have an indication from Paula Bradshaw. Um, Paula, go ahead, please. Um, thank you. Uh, 
two quick, quick questions. The first one's around the consultation. I appreciate that they're technical in nature, but I'm just conscious of how you can could better engage with the actual um, businesses as opposed to just the councils. Have you any plans to increase that? That's the first question. Will I respond to that one now, Paula? Yeah. Please. Um, we, our, our consultations go out to a wide range of consultees. So while this one was specifically interesting for district councils, we also consulted with food and feed businesses and agri-food representatives and organisations across the board. Okay. Okay. I'm just wondering, but in terms of any potential changes then, how... Um, how, how do you communicate those with the, the businesses that are affected then at the far side of the change? Um, we have very um, well um, matured uh, relationships with, with all of our food businesses and we tend to target if there's something, for example, for, for the meat industry, we tend to target the meat industry. If it's something much more general, we would talk to um, the wider business sectors um, we use biz, um, NI Business Info as well, the, the um, Invest NI site, um, to get information out to businesses as well. And we also uh, work very closely with the colleges. So CAFRI does a lot of work um, with us to run seminars and get information out to businesses that way. Okay, thank you. And, and you may not have the answer to this this morning, but the last time the Health Minister came to Health Committee, um, it was just after the Queen's um, speech around the introduction of calories on menus and he said you need to pick it up with a food sanity agency and I'm not I'm sure you'll have the answer for me today but obviously a lot of people within um, you know eating disorder charities and stuff are very concerned about the potential for this so if you don't have the answer today about where you are with that is that something you could supply some information to the committee on thank you uh, we, we would love to come back to the committee and talk to you about a full range of our um, obesity prevention work uh, and what our plans are around providing information for consumers. We already have um, a, um, a voluntary scheme in Northern Ireland called Calorie Wise, um, and that has been very successful. So we would love to come back. That would be great. Thanks, Paula. Great stuff. Thank you very much, ladies. Okay, and just checking then with uh, members, any other questions from members? No, I don't see any other indications there, Maria. So listen, thank you for coming along for briefing. Um, we will we will complete our consideration of this, but for now, both yourself and Elvira, thank you for attending, and we, uh, we, we'll go ahead and, and formally consider the, uh, the, uh, the SL1. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Okay, members, um, thank you. Have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to that SL1? Alan, go ahead. Sorry, Chairman, just a very quick question. Is SSR uh, uh, connected to the protocol, the implementation of the protocol? Well, I didn't see an indication Alan, until after. I wonder, can we get Mer, Mer, uh, can we get the official back on the line, Clerk? We'll, we'll, uh, try, and, uh, we'll try and get them back on. Um, if we can, it might take a couple of minutes um, just to contact them again and ask them to come on. 
Yeah, and I don't want to move on to the next substantive item if we can get them back on briefly. Or, Adam, well, would would you be content to if we got a, if we saw a written answer? My, my, my position on it would be would be guided by whether it's part of the protocol. If it is part of the protocol, I would be opposed to it. And if it's not, I'd be quite happy to support Mr. Chairman. Just a like clarification before I would indicate my support for it. Thank you. Okay, well, we will see. Can we get that clarification? Um, and I think I think we're best staying on the line. Is that correct, Clerk? While we, uh, or is it is it better to suspend for a short time? Well, I, I'm happy that one of the team will be making contact at the minute to see if we can get them back on. Um, so okay. we should know in the next minute or two. Um, okay. the, the, the key point is this is a SL1 proposal. Um, so th there is a bit of time in this as well. If we're unable today to get them back on, we can seek clarification on it before a decision is made. Okay, and if if it if it transpires that we can't get them on sort of reasonably soon now, but we can get them back on later in the meeting, we can we can pick it up again then. But we will give it a, a short period of time here to see if we can get a, a quick answer on that. Sorry, Chair. I think we'll just move on at present. Um, we've tried to make contact. It's just going to voicemail at the minute. Okay. Okay. So listen, we can pick it up. We can pick it up at a later stage of the meeting. Um, so members, we'll move on to our next substantive brief, substantive item, agenda item, which is item six: severe fetal impairment abortion amendment bill. And we are receiving this morning a briefing from the Royal College of Midwives and NA Abortion and Contraception Task Group. Um, this is an evidence session in relation to this uh, private member's bill, and I refer members to the written submission from the Royal College of Midwives at tab 6.1 of your pack, and the written submission from the Abortion and Contraception Task Group at tab 6.2. We also have a further briefing paper from the Royal College of Midwives at tab 6.3 of your table pack. Representatives from both organisations are here today to give evidence on the bill. So I would now like to welcome Miss Karen Murray, who is Director of the Royal College of Midwives. Good morning, Carol, and are you able to hear us okay? I am indeed, Chair, thank you very much. Thank you, Karen, you're very welcome. And Miss Michelle McGrath, who is a member of the NA Abortion and Contraception Task Group. Can you hear us okay, Michelle? Yes, I can, thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. Well, if I could ask each of you then, uh, well, first of all, just to welcome you both, Tafalchir Rov, Guji and Koshta. You're very welcome to our health committee this morning. And I will go back to you there for maybe uh, five minutes each of an outline briefing, and then we'll go to questions from members. Um, Karen, I think your camera is facing the wrong way. If you could, if you could reverse camera 
I think uh, there's there's an issue there. And also for both Karen and Michelle, if you're using a headset, that, that does greatly help with the sound quality. And if I could ask everyone, including the panel and members, to remain on mute when you're not speaking, that's also important in terms of sound quality. So I'll just uh, I'll just give it a wee second to see if uh, if we can get Karen on the screen there. Are you still able to hear me, Karen? I can hear you. Um, I'm just trying to figure out why my camera has gone back to front. So apologies for that, Chair. Um, I'm not quite sure how to how to change that round. Um, okay. Well, we are hearing you clearly. So if you don't if you don't manage to do that. Hey, don't worry, we can go ahead. We are we are able to hear you okay. Um, so I, I, uh, do you want to just go ahead with the briefing and work away on that as you go, Karen? Um, yes, I'm happy to go ahead with the briefing um, and and see see what I can do around the camera. Um, first of all, I'd like to or say. Would you like Would you like if I went to Michelle? Would you like if I went to Michelle first and give you a couple of minutes more to see if you can sort that? Would that maybe? That would, that would be perfect, um, Chair, and and I will try and sort the camera situation out. Thank you. Yeah, sometimes it may be worth a. Sometimes it may be worth coming out and back in. Sometimes deals with some of those types of issues, but um, I suppose try 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 something uh, in that line if that works. So we'll go then to Michelle. And Michelle, could I ask if you would be content then to go ahead and and do your give your briefing to the committee? Yes, chair, that's fine. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so thank you for your time this morning. Um, I am here representing Northern Ireland Abortion and Contraception Task Group. NIACT is a group of multidisciplinary professionals who came together in March 2020 to give professional guidance on bringing about the conditions and services required to minimise the need for abortion in Northern Ireland, but when it is required to provide a compassionate and caring abortion service within the framework of the Abortion Northern Ireland Regulations 2020. The group is chaired by consultant Ralph, Ralph Roberts and the group includes obstetricians and gynaecologists, sexual and reproductive health doctors and nurses, a GP, the chair of the Northern Ireland Committee of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, the Northern Ireland Regional Committee Chair of the Faculty and Sexual Reproductive Health um, um, committee and the current and past directors of the Royal College of Midwives in Northern Ireland, representatives from Informing Choices Northern Ireland and Common Youth and academics with a research and policy interest in abortion. Within this membership, there was representations from each of the five health and social care trusts. In the early stages, the work of the group focused largely on setting up the early medical abortion or EMA services in response to travel restrictions imposed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Within weeks, EMA services were set up in line with the new legal framework across all five trusts. NIAC then turned its attention to writing its report on sex and reproductive health in Northern Ireland, which was published on the 31st of March 2021. And I'm not sure if committee have uh, seen this report, um, but it is available. I can get copies to you if you so require. Um, it, this report provides an evidence base and sets out a strategy to inform the funding and commissioning of relationships and sex education and integrated sexual and reproductive health care for the population of Northern Ireland. It is based on a six-point vision encompassing the themes of reproductive justice, relationships and sexuality education, 
awareness and provision of contraception and emergency contraception and providing non-stigmatised, safe and compassionate abortion care. And I would like to read that vision to you this morning. We have a vision that every child in Northern Ireland is born into a family that has both the will and means to support their needs and nurture their development. It is our vision that all children and young people should be provided with high quality education that teaches about healthy relationships, consent, sexuality and the ability to decide when and if to start a family. We believe that all young people and adults should be educated about the benefits and effectiveness of different methods of contraception. Women and girls should be empowered to take control of their fertility and contraception should be easily accessible and freely available. When a pregnancy is unintended, women and girls should be supported with decision making in a way that is unbiased, non-judgmental and devoid of stigma. Where abortion is needed, services should be accessible, high quality and designed to deliver safe and compassionate care. The report makes 38 recommendations, two of which are particularly relevant to the proposed amendment which is being considered by this committee. Namely, recommendation 28, that the UK National Screening Committee recommendations for first trimester screening should be introduced so that women in Northern Ireland have equity with women in other parts of the UK and for those who choose choose abortion that this can happen at an earlier gestational age. Recommendation 29 is that services should be adequately resourced to ensure that there is the capability to provide abortion within Northern Ireland at all gestations. NIAC's report can be used as a blueprint for the development of services, including the approval of telemedicine for providing EMA and the introduction of buffer zones around clinics to diminish the adverse impact of protests on patients, many of whom are not seeking abortion. We have particular concerns about the lack of commissioning of abortion services and the resultant fragility and geographical inequity of the current non-commissioned service. We also have serious concerns about the activities of private clinics, which pose as abortion providers, but whose purpose it is to delay and obstruct women wishing to have an abortion. In addition, we have profound reservations about the amendment being considered today. Firstly, we believe that its authority is greatly undermined by the fact that it was brought forward without any consultation with the doctors who might provide the services it is seeking to deny. We would assert that this is a complex medical matter and approaching it with a lack of medical consultation is not a good starting point for changing legislation. The bill appears to be founded on an emotive link between the abortion regulations and disability discrimination. If a woman is carrying a baby with severe fetal impairment, she will be aware of the impact that this will have on her existing family and we believe the compassionate view is to let her decide the fate of that pregnancy. NIACT would contend that the second reading of the bill was supported by arguments which are not based in reality. The suggestion that clinicians in Northern Ireland would facilitate late termination of pregnancy due to club foot, cleft palate or even uncomplicated Down syndrome is totally erroneous and this has misled those taking part in the debate. Medical staff perceive this as a lack of trust in the very same doctors who we all rely upon to bring about successful outcomes in many medically complicated pregnancies and parents are always supported in their decisions to continue a pregnancy following a diagnosis of severe fetal impairment. 
NIACT would like to point out that the number of cases affected by the proposed change in the regulations is very small, but for those involved, <coughs> excuse me, for those involved, the impact may be profound. There are cases which either present later in pregnancy or there are difficulties in diagnosis which may lead to properly considered decisions overrunning the 24-week limit. Rushing both diagnosis and decisions to beat the 24-week deadline may actually result in more decisions to terminate and thus be counterproductive. If late terminations are to occur, it is important that they are performed locally and not exported to England. This will reduce the stress and distress suffered by those families and will facilitate proper local psychological and bereavement support. Finally, NIAC believes that this amendment would mean that the abortion regulations would be no longer compliant with the UN CEDAW recommendations. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Michelle. And um, actually, w when you started there, I realised your camera's off as well. So I'm not oh. sure. I think uh, I think I think uh, Karen has got her sorted there. That's you on now. That's you on. Sorry. Now, so no, no, no problem. It was very clear. We were able to follow it. No problem. So it's useful to have you on camera for the question and answer session anyway. So I uh, thank you, Michelle. And I go back to you then, Karen, if you'd like to go ahead with your presentation, please. Thank you very much, Chair, and apologies for the technical difficulties, but we, we did get them sorted. Um, the Royal College of Midwives welcomes the opportunity to speak to the committee today. Um, we responded both to the consultation on the NIO uh, consultation on a new legal framework for abortion services in Northern Ireland and to the call for evidence related to the Severe Fetal Impairment Abortion Amendment Bill. The RCM has a particular interest in this bill as the majority of women impacted by it will be receiving maternity care and be supported by a midwife. I have a short briefing for you, but I'm looking forward to exploring uh, issues more directly with the committee. The greatest impact of this bill will be felt by the unfortunate women who find themselves in the situation of needing to access an abortion later in pregnancy. Many women impacted by this bill will have planned pregnancies and very much wanted babies. But when something changes during the course of the pregnancy, they may decide to have an abortion. This is never an easy option. The decision may be delayed beyond 24 weeks because of late presentation into maternity services, changes in circumstances, maternal health and well-being, or due to a delay in diagnosis of fetal anomaly. Any indication of an abnormality has a devastating impact for the woman, her partner and her family. Women's reasons for terminating a pregnancy on grounds of fetal anomaly may include the emotional and financial cost of raising a disabled child, the effect on a woman's ability to care for her existing children and the feeling that it is cruel to have a child that will need constant medical intervention and may live in pain. Ultimately, the woman must make a judgment as to what she in her particular circumstances and at that point in her life can cope with. The shock of receiving such a diagnosis can make these women very vulnerable. They may be tipped over the edge into serious mental health or physical health problems if forced to continue with the pregnancy or if forced to travel to England to access services. The decision that a woman makes is not a value judgment about people living with a disability but rather a judgment about her own ability to cope with the situation. Each woman needs to have sufficient time to receive all the information pertinent to her situation, to consider and review options, likely outcomes, treatment options, 
and to come to a reasoned decision that is right for the individual woman and her family. They deserve access to non-directive, evidence-based information and access to healthcare professionals who are skilled in discussing pregnancy options in a, a sensitive, non-judgmental way. Information needs to be available in a format that's easily accessible and ultimately there must be respect for the woman's autonomous decision-making. The impact of this bill means that there is a cutoff for abortion by the 24th week of pregnancy. This places significant time pressures on women in relation to the complex clinical and personal decision-making required in these circumstances. Midwives are central to the care these women receive. All women have the right to exercise choice over every aspect of their maternity care, including whether to have a baby or not. They have the right to be given the necessary information to make informed decisions about their care, and midwives have a duty of care to ensure that women receive all of the appropriate information and advice they need to do this. Midwives are best placed to provide continuity of compassionate, woman-centred care, regardless of the decision they make. Midwives work with women who are considering or have made a decision to terminate their pregnancy. They will care for women during the process of termination of pregnancy and will care for women before and after a termination in the same way as they will care for women who, de who decide to continue with their pregnancy. Midwifery practice will always comply with the legal framework relevant to the provision of such services. In October 2019, I wrote to Royal College of Midwife members to outline their rights and responsibilities in relation to conscientious objection. They were directed to the NMC code for guidance on matters relating to the issue, and several sections of the code are applicable, but specifically paragraph 4.4, which states that they must tell colleagues, their manager and the person receiving care if they have a particular conscientious objection to a particular procedure and arrange for suitably qualified colleague to take over responsibility for that person's care. Conscientious objection has been defined in both legislation and through course case law as only applying to the actual procedure of abortion. If a midwife has a conscientious objection, they must make it known to their manager well in advance of any woman presenting for care. Midwives cannot object to providing care before the procedure or after and must continue to provide care in an emergency situation. However, failure to commission services as outlined in the Abortion Northern Ireland Regulations 2020 leaves my members working to provide safe, effective care without a clear framework for service delivery, clear care pathways to guide quality care and clear guidance, including guidance about how to exercise their right to conscientious objection. The inquiries I received to the office are frequently related to practice issues, seeking guidance about providing care based on a desire to do the best for these women. I have regular ongoing contact with midwives across Northern Ireland and at no point in time did Mr Given or anyone from his office approach the Royal College of Midwives and ask for our professional input into the potential effect or impact of his bill. The RCM will expect to be part of the working group to develop the policy framework in which services will be provided so that we can contribute our expertise into its development. Denying abortion after 24 weeks will not stop it happening, but it will lead to already traumatised and devastated women being forced to travel to access healthcare that they should rightfully expect locally. Thank you, Chair.
Okay, thank you, Karen and uh, Michelle both. So I suppose a couple of issues that I would like to pick on, pick up on before I go to members is um, in relation to the issue of screening, um, which which we have heard. Uh, Karen, can you can you outline for us what the difficulties are with screening or how that impacts uh, the, the the potential uh, knock on impacts for women here in relation to screening services? Yes, Chair. Um, the NI, uh, the screening scheme in Northern Ireland currently does not uh, replicate the screening um, system across the UK. So we don't have routine access to um, early screening tests. Um, usually the first indication for a woman that there may be a issue with the pregnancy is at the 20-week scan. Um, that is purely a screening a screening tool. Um, there may be structural abnormalities identified, um, but that woman then um, needs to move forward into more diagnostic methods of identifying um, the, the anomaly. Um, and that takes time. They need referral to um, fetal medicine specialists. They need to have further tests. Um, they need to await the outcome of those tests and have conversations with, with the medical team around the expectations of the the impact of that anomaly on on the on the baby, um, and all of that takes time. And I do think it's important just to highlight that although we talk about this um, being abortion up to twenty four weeks, those decisions need to be made by the twenty third week in order to facilitate sufficient time um, to organise the procedure and for the procedure to be completed. Um, so the the biggest issue in terms of screening at the moment um, really is those are those time factors and. The, um, this, this bill and the impact of this bill would create um, significant time pressures, both for the clinicians, but also importantly for the women um, who are having to deal with very complex information, both clinical information, but thinking about that from a personal perspective and, and how that's going to work in their own individual family um, and to, to come to decision that they are um, comfortable with. I think is is the word. It's it's never a decision any woman wishes to make, but it's a, it's a decision that they 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 need to think about and a judgment that they need to make. Um, so I think the time pressures are are our biggest issue at the moment, given the the current screening program in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Karen. And my second one then I think is really more for Michelle, and it's around uh, in your presentation, Michelle, as it said on your in your written submission. That you'd let, I will, and for, before I go to that, if you could pass on that report that you referred to earlier with the six point vision, I think I think uh, that information will be useful for committee members. So please do forward on that report. But in terms of the, uh, you, you also pointed out the number of cases affected by the proposed change is very small, but for those involved would would be a really profound effect. Uh, and you, you went on to say that these are cases that present later in, later in pregnancy or where there are difficulties in diagnosis, which may lead to properly consider decisions overrunning the 24-week limit. Rushing these diagnoses and decisions to beat the 24-week deadline may actually result in more decisions to terminate and may thus be totally counterproductive. Can you uh, elaborate a bit on that as to, as to your thinking on that, please? 
Yeah, um, I think actually Karen has covered that very well when she explained that, um, you know, the, the 20 week scan is only a, a, a scan. It's a routine process. And by the time the patients go through all their diagnostic tests, see the fetal medicine specialists, um, you really only have three weeks in between that 20 week scan to get all your investigations done, see the fetal medicine team and make a decision. And when a woman receives trauma, traumatic information and it is traumatic because um, most of these are, are very much wanted pregnancies and um, it does it's, it's like receiving any shock it does take time to process and um, so very much along the lines of, of what Karen has already uh, has already stated um, you know there, there will be women who feel pressurized into making decisions which they later on regret and they may well have continued with their pregnancy had they had time to um, consider their options and to receive support and information um, not only from the fetal medicine specials, specialists but also from you know other charitable bodies which um, you know would provide support to families with children with disabilities and impairments. Okay okay thank you so I'm going to go across to members then I'm going first of all to Deputy Chair Pam Cameron and then we have Kara Hunter, Paula Bradshaw and Jerry Carroll indicating at this point so Pam go ahead please. Thank you Chair and thank you ladies for your, for your presentation. Um, my party's stance on the issue of abortion has always been clear and I do hear, however, respect and appreciate other opinions on what is an incredibly difficult subject. Um, but I wanted to ask you um, why it's justified to protect the life of babies that don't have Down syndrome, but not of those that do. And is it not a really uh, a reality that you're supporting discrimination against babies with disabilities? I'm happy to take Yep, Sorry. go on ahead. Go ahead, Karen. Yep. Um, I, I, I think it's important to, to recognise that um, this is, is a, about a woman's individual choice. Um, certainly from, from a midwifery perspective, when we're providing care for these women, um, we will provide care regardless whether that woman wishes to continue with a pregnancy, um, where there is a diagnosis of Down syndrome or any other um, disability, and we will provide that care um, to a high standard, compassionately and with empathy. Um, and equally, we will provide compassionate and empathetic care to those women who, for their own reasons, feel that they are unable to, at that point in time, um, can, uh, sort of proceed with a pregnancy. Um, so I, I think it's, 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 we, we have to be careful here that this is not about um, health professionals making a decision about which pregnancies to continue and which not. This is about reasons, decisions based on evidence, um, based information from medical professionals to a woman and that woman making a decision given her own set of personal circumstances. Um, and and that, that would be very much our stance and, and the stance of the college. Yeah, and were you looking in on that as well, Michelle? No, I think that's, I think Karen's answered that very well. Okay. Thank you, Pam, anything else, Pam? Uh, not, not really. Just, just to say that I suppose uh, where I do appreciate where you're coming from. Um, that's about that's back to the choice issue. But really, you know, this bill is really dealing with the, the discriminatory issues around disabilities. 
I think, I, I think, as I said in my initial briefing, um, and, and not to labour the point, but I, I think in, in, in my initial briefing, I did point out that women are not making these decisions um, in terms of any value statement about the disability, but they are making judgments based on their own um, personal circumstances and the position that they find themselves in. And I, I think the one thing as midwives that we appreciate is that, that women come from a very wide um, set of circumstances with lots of um, issues going on in their own lives and we and, and we're very conscious of that so I, I think this is not about any value statement in relation to disability but this is around an individual's woman an individual woman's circumstances and her ability to cope with a situation at a, a given time okay okay thank thank you so going then to Chiara Hunter go ahead Chiara please Thank you, Chair, and thank you to Michelle and Karen for being here today. You know, your contributions really help uh, shape the debate, uh, and I find them very helpful. Uh, Michelle, you had made a fantastic point around um, the need for increased uh, and improved relationship and sexuality education. Um, I certainly feel what's there at the minute really isn't reflective. Uh, it, it's it, it's not built for purpose. I think it's a pick and mix approach. Uh, every classroom is not getting the same level of education around these crucial topics. So just to, to really highlight that, and I think uh, specifically around consent is a very important point. Um, so thank you for raising that. Um, ladies, I just have two questions uh, this morning. Um, one I have raised last week as well is just around screening, uh, and I thank the chair for raising it previously. Um, I'm just mindful there is evident barriers uh, to prenatal screening based on socioeconomic status. Last week we had touched on the Iona test uh, and the cost there, so there's definitely financial barriers. So I I'm just wondering uh, what more you think we can do to improve our screening here. And then secondly, um, my second question is uh, with the focus on the welfare of the mother, whether they decide to, to keep or to terminate, uh, what is your assessment and what is your experience uh, of the current counselling provision currently available? Thank you. Thank you, Clara. Karen, um, if, you, if you are happy enough to answer the screening bit, I'm happy enough to do the second question. Yes, that, that's, that's fine. Um, I think the screening issue is an important issue, uh, Cara. Um, there, there probably is um, sense in bringing the Northern Ireland system in line with the rest of the UK um, in terms of providing equity for women um, around around the the screening processes. Remembering that that you know, in terms of maternity services and how midwives work, it is all based on choice. So women can, you know, even if we have a full screening service in the same manner as the UK system, women can choose to opt in or opt out of it. So if they choose not to have the screening test, they, they don't have to have them. Um, so I think there is something about aligning ourselves with, with the wider the wider system. Um, midwives are very well placed to communicate complex information around screening tests, um, around what their purpose is, explaining that it is screening, that it's not diagnostic, but that, that it will give indications and, and also giving information about, um, you know, the process of the diagnostic processes if, if there are concerns raised as part of, part of the screening programme. Um, so, so I, I suppose my, my thoughts to, to reduce the inequity and especially around the, um, the availability of the screen tests in Northern Ireland at a fee, um, I think it, it is around um, widening the, the screening access to the to a similar level as the rest of the 
UK um, and enabling women to make choices as to whether or not they wish to avail of that screening process or not. Thank you. So um, in response in terms to your question on assessment and counselling, um, as you had, a, I believe you had a presentation from Informing Choices last week and um, Informing Choices Northern Ireland would be our central access point. So anyone wishing to access an abortion um, would ring them and they go through a process of counselling where all options are discussed, not just termination of pregnancy. Um, this is non-directive, non-judgmental counselling. And um, when the patient decide they want to go ahead then they're referred to whatever um, trust then um, they are resident in. Following that um, they will be put onto our Lily system which is a confidential sexual and reproductive health system and um, the, the doctors, uh, medical staff involved in the service will then make contact with the patients via telephone and they have a telephone assessment done. That includes a medical history, that includes their discussion, there is discussion um, about, you know, um, do the women feel under any pressure? Are they being coerced? Um, if women need more time to think about it, that's fine as well. Um, so all that is done in the medical assessment before then they're eventually booked into treatment. And we still do have women who do arrive for treatment and change their mind and they're very much supported um, in their decisions because this, this is nursing particularly is all about patient-centred care and focusing um, on the patient's needs and our professional role is of, as nurses is to be advocates for our patients. So um, it's, it's supporting them in their decisions. It's having um, a voice when they feel they can't speak up. So I, I do feel they, they, that the patients get a, a very high level of assessment and counselling um, prior to coming for treatment. Yeah. Could I, sorry, Cara, could I add something to that? Um, I, one of the things when I've been talking to um, midwives recently are around some of these issues, um, the, the counselling services are, are there and, and ICNI provide excellent post-pregnancy counselling services as well. One of the big issues that, that midwives are raising are issues of bereavement counselling. And, and I think it is important to recognise that in these circumstances, these women are bereaved. Um, mm -hmm. They're bereaved of, a, of a, a normal, healthy pregnancy. And then they also have the, the bereavement after the birth, you know, whenever the, the baby, they, they still have to go through the processes in terms of arranging funerals, et cetera, for, for babies. Um, so one of the plays within the maternity services would be strengthening of those bereavement services and, and um, making sure that we have sufficient midwives um, in bereavement posts in each of the trusts um, to, to provide um, good services for these women because it is slightly different. The circumstances are slightly different. And for these women and their experience of bereavement is slightly different as well. Thank you, Michelle and Karen. Those are very detailed and helpful answers. Thank you both. Okay, thank you. Um, and moving along then to Paula Bradshaw. Go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Karen and Michelle, for coming this morning and for your written briefing. Both very, very helpful and to the point. Um, I, I just have two questions. The first one is to uh, well, first of all, I'd like to thank Michelle and her, her um, healthcare professional team across all the trusts for stepping up um, to deliver on um, abortion services in Northern Ireland when the Department of Health have failed to do so. 
Um, I welcomed your report, um, as you call it, a blueprint for how abortion services could be commissioned here in Northern Ireland. I'm not sure whether you saw um, the Human Rights Commission's um, presentation last week, but they mm -hmm. had indicated that off the back of the legal challenge that the Department of Health had said that they have established a project board and that could take eight to ten months to um, do exactly what you have produced in your blueprint. And I'm not I know the in-depth work that went into it. So my question is, has the Department of Health engaged with you uh, as a um, as a group to actually work through um, the blueprint, the report that you have produced? Thank you. Project board, but they did indicate a timescale of six to nine months. Um, the problem is um, we are operating services on the ground now and we need a framework. We need guidance. Um, trusts need guidance. Staff need guidance. So this needs done really matter of urgency, um, you know, along with the commissioning process, alongside the commissioning process. Thank you. Um, the second question relates to, I'm not sure whether you saw the um, first debate in the chamber on this bill, and, and there were some accusations were made around coercive language um, by healthcare professionals of women who had received this diagnosis. And I raised it last week with Informing Choices, but obviously used of the healthcare professionals. Um, on that, and you referred there to non-directive um, information and, and support and advice. Could you please just outline for the committee the length of time and the qualifications um, that um, bring a, a consultant to the point where they're a fetal medicine consultant um, in terms of demonstrating their professionalism and their tenure? Thank you. Okay. Um, to be honest, uh, Paul, I'm probably not best placed um, to answer that question because I have a nursing background, but not a, a medical background. But I mean, fetal medicine specialists will come up through the normal medical training route um, and they serve their time as junior house officers. Well, they're not called that now. Um, right the way up through registrars. So to, to reach a specialist level at that stage, they have years upon years of paediatric experience. Um, and our fetal medicine specialists over here, I think you've had a, report, a submission from them, um, are very, very highly skilled. They're developing new techniques all the time in terms of pr provision of intrauterine surgery and things to improve outcomes for babies. So they're very much in the front line and supporting women um, and, and, and trying to advance medical practice in order that women may deliver safe, safely um, and have as, as healthy a baby as possible. Possible. So they're very much, you know, um, experienced um, along these lines. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to Karen for your robust report as well. I really appreciate it. I have no questions for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And going then to Jerry Carroll. Jerry, go ahead, please. Thanks, Chair. Um, thanks, Michelle and Karen as well. Um, uh, Karen, can you hear me okay, Chair? Yeah? Yes, hearing you, Jerry. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm on a different computer to check if you can hear me. Um, Karen, the fact that the, um, the proposal of the bill, uh, in your words, didn't consult with uh, yourself and, and Midway's representatives in the RCM is, is quite telling about the about the aims of the bill, in my view. Um, and despite the, the claims about it protecting people with uh, disabilities, um, in my view, um, it's appealing uh, to a particular narrative uh, that doesn't want any uh, control for women over their bodies or agency for them or, or 
and, and, and really wants to roll back and restrict abortion uh, in all cases. And, and you can agree on that or not, but uh, that's something that uh, I think has to be uh, has to be said. Um, just um, two quick questions and a, a, another follow up. Um, can you maybe elaborate on the uh, private clinics um, and the role they play in terms of uh, obstructing abortion, either by giving out uh, false information or by delaying? Um, I think it was Karen or, or Michelle who ever said that delaying and uh, the ability for for women to the access um, terminates. I think that's quite a uh, a cruel practice and something that kind of happens below the radar. So maybe you can expand upon that and the, the, the pain that causes. And another point that I raised it last week with the um, uh, Amnesty and the Human Rights Commission, uh, but, but you, um, you you said it today in your presentation, the fact that this uh, bill, if it proceeded, could actually lead to an increase in terminations because you know people feel forced with the time restriction to make a decision that they may not choose if they, had, if they have longer uh, time to consider their options. So maybe just if you could expand upon um, the private clinics and the increased uh, terminations, and then I have just a, a quick follow-up uh, for you. Thanks. Okay. Um, I could maybe respond to the private clinics. Um, if you Google abortion in Northern Ireland, um, one of the private clinics would come up sort of quite high up on the Google list. Um, it is a clinic which I believe is funded by pro-life um, organisations in the States. Um, when patients Google this, because there isn't a lot of information around in Northern Ireland about how to access early medical abortion services, there's been no public health information given out. Um, so patients tend to, to do what people do and they Google. So this comes up quite quite high up on the Google list when patients ring to this clinic and this has been this is information is coming from patients directly so um, they ring the clinic and they are booked in for a scan um, they are um, they it takes them some time to realize sometimes that these this clinic is not an abortion provider so they they are made to have a scan they are then told they have to come back in another few weeks and have another scan and it's and I think probably it's only as they're leaving and the language that is used the persuasive language that is used with them that they realize that this actually isn't an abortion provider um, and we have had patients come into the service extremely distressed because they have been delayed for so long that they are now over the nine weeks plus six days for treatment and they have either had to travel to England um, in the middle of, of a pandemic which obviously is not ideal or they've had to um, access unregulated services um, on the web so it's extremely distressing um, for patients and we do believe in, in, in patient advocacy, patient choice. So um, it's, it's very difficult to try uh, as nurses to try and protect these patients um, from the damage that these clinics are doing. Karen, do you want to speak about? Yeah, I, I'm ha happy to pick up the the issue around the, the timeframes. I, I think we've, we've sort of discussed it at various points. Um, we are talking about women who have received traumatic information they are devastated they need time to process that and we've also talked about the length of time it takes for um, diagnostics to, occur and for information to be provided 
Um, and I just think it's important to, to highlight the fact that this, this is not just information in relation to the potential to terminate a pregnancy. Um, I'm aware of women um, in the province who are continuing with pregnancies and are going ahead to, to donate organs. I'm aware of women who've continued with pregnancies and have had um, superb support from the Northern Ireland Children's Hospice. Um, so, so these women make a range of choices, but they need time to think that through to get the information around what, what the potential outcome of the pregnancy is going to be and then to consider the range of options that are actually available to them. Um, and going back to Paula's issue around medical staff and, and accusations about the use of language, um, I would bring that back to the fact that there is a, there is a midwife involved in this often um, and who, who will um, support women and, and some, sometimes help them to understand the the um the information that they're being received and helping to process that information so you know there there are a number of checks and balances in the system to make sure that, that women have that have the right information understand that information and then are able to make um judgments and reasoned decisions for themselves thank, thank you michelle and thanks karen i think as you said uh, that uh, people should be given the choice and the time and the space rather than the stigma. Uh, and uh, this bill, in my view, would, would increase the stigma and, and, and hurt for women. Uh, and just finally, um, my understanding is in countries where there's uh, no criminalisation and no restrictions uh, in terms of beyond medical uh, guidance and guidelines, we we'll have actually some of the lowest levels of, of, of abortions in the world. Uh, and the ironic thing is that people who can be uh, against abortion with increasing these um, regulations and restrictions will actually lead to people uh, likely seeking and uh, accessing more uh, terminations. Uh, yeah, my final question is uh, if either of you have any comment to make on the, the limited services that exist uh, at the minute for, for terminations, you know, some trusts without uh, services that obviously scaled back and, and the limited access um, or the difficulty for women to get uh, terminations after. Uh, well, we just my final question, and thank you for for joining us today. Okay, so um, I suppose at one point, um, I think three out of the five trusts had stopped delivering services. Um, Southeastern Trust had stopped for a month, Northern Trust had stopped for three months, and the Western Trust is currently the services are suspended. When the EMA service was first developed, it was very much led by. Um, conscientious committed medical staff um, and some of the medical staff were working single-handedly with no doc, no um, admin support, no nursing support and the, the service was really just unsustainable. Um, during the height of lockdown, um, the, the reason actually the trust could actually do this because there was a slight step down in um, our normal sexual and reproductive health clinics be, because obviously of, of the pandemic. So we were able to divert our our resources into that um, but we're left in the position now where we're we, we have restarted services so it's it's very difficult um, to juggle everything and in terms of we, we are we're, you know we're we're public we have a public purse we're expected to meet budgets and things like that so at, at the minute it's it's extremely difficult um and only for the staff involved i don't think we would any of the trusts would have been able to, to carry on um without the the committed staff that they have um 
I suppose the the twelve week limit. Um, in reality, in Northern Ireland, it's actually uh, women are unable to access termination of pregnancy up to nine weeks and six days. Currently, there is no service for beyond this. So, if they are between ten and twelve weeks, they either have to travel to England to access services, or what a lot of women do do is opt to use unregulated services for services and um, obtain um, a medication online. And that is something that, you know, I'm not saying that it's not safe, but it's something we would prefer to see happening within regulated services. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Michelle and Karen, and thank you, Jerry. And going then to, I have the following members then indicating, so Karen E. Killen, then Orlea Flynn, and then Jonathan Buckley. So, Carol Goray Lidahull. Um, Karen and Michelle, thank you very much for your professional, your objective, and your compassionate presentation to the committee this morning. Um, I think it's like other members have commented, it's very telling that the c- consultation with health professionals um, who I trust um, was not availed of on this, this occasion. And I think I just want to put that in the record. Um, you mentioned the fact that, and, and I, I I think this has been raised. It was certainly raised last week with Amnesty and Informing Choices and with the, the Human Rights Commission that even for women who aren't accessing um, abortion services or even just accessing reproductive health care are being subject to people who have a right to protest and not even just those women and their partners, but also the staff. So I would just like to hear your views in terms of we often talk about safe staff and legislation, which has been absent. Unfortunately, it's not going ahead. Mm-hmm. But in your opinion, um, you know, regarding safe staff and, and the safety, the safety of staff, because we started today's session about attacks on our ambulance services, and rightfully so. Um, the same healthcare professionals have been providing healthcare and advice and compassion. It could be on any different field of medicine. They'll just bring those skills and that compassion with them, regardless where they're working. So I'd like your comments on that in terms of what women and their partners and indeed staff have had to endure. And then my second question really is that regardless Regardless of this legislation passes or not, there will be women, pregnant people, who will have to go and access abortions if that's their choice. And um, and and for us, um, that's something that you know when we talk about healthcare for all, it it actually means in reality healthcare for some. So, and and, and I just want to finish by putting my. Uh, gratitude as a mother and a grandmother to um, midwives. We have a fantastic midwifery unit in the matter in North Belfast and our midwives in the Royal, indeed right across the Trust, but certainly in Belfast are unreal. I mean, they contact us about poverty, about housing, about nutrition, about mental health. They go well above and beyond. And I just want to put that in the record. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, 
that's that's lovely to hear about the midwives. Um, I'm sure Karen's absolutely delighted. Um, I probably Karen would be the uh, best answer the the question on the protests. Yeah. So we have at the, at the minute in the Northern Trust, um, we have two groups of protesters every week, um, outside the clinic, um, and we absolutely recognise that people have the right to protest. But at the outset, I would like to say that. The right to protest does not trump women's right to access to safely access healthcare without intimidation. And also um, the staff as well. Staff have a right to in exit and enter their workplace without intimidation. So a typical situation at the clinics at the minute um, would be one of the groups in particular would come across the road and stand outside the clinic doors and try and um, prevent patients basically from coming in and they are forced leaflets. Um, if they the patients decline the leaflets, they are told to take them and pass them on to somebody else. Patients are leave the clinic and are followed to their cars, again, trying to force leaflets onto them. Um, they carry signs which say, we love you. And then they're also calling the women murderers. Um, this the whole thing is extremely distressing for patients and we have had staff have had to escort patients to their cars um so it, it's it, it's a very very difficult situation um and again recently um there this particular group are actually approaching all women of childbearing age coming in and out of what is a busy health center so you could have women that have previously suffered a miscarriage um, being exposed to very graphic images, which can re-traumatise them. You could have women who are, are having trouble with their fertility, and that's very traumatic for them to see that. Um, you know, there's all different people coming in and out of that health centre, um, and they've even started approaching um I don't think they realise their staff, but any woman of childbearing age now um, is approached um, and staff are beginning to find this quite distressing as well. So it's a very difficult situation and it's a very, very clear indication for the need for buffer zones um, around these clinics, um, not only for the staff and the patients, but for everybody that's that's using the health centre. We do have we have a mental health team where we work as well, so it's very it can be very, very distressing for them so we would urge the committee and um, when the bill comes forward about buffer zones that you you would all support that because it's extremely distressing thank you um I'm, i might follow on on that one carol if you don't mind um you know certainly michelle's picked up the health center piece very well um we're also aware that, that we do have protests at one at one hospital um and from the the you know as a college um, and a member organisation, you know we we have distinct concerns around the workforce, um, and and the distress that this caused for work for the workforce. And whenever nurses and midwives, children see signs which are basically saying you're a murderer, and come home and say, "Mommy, do you kill babies?" Um, that that's very difficult when whenever whenever we we have have midwives and nurses and doctors working in those situations. So, I think I think the the right to protest absolutely is there. Um, but but there is something about respectful protest 
um, and and about doing that, which which doesn't cause um, you know harassment and doesn't intimidate um, people. So certainly, certainly this this has come up and and will is being discussed at health committee for the Irish Congress trade unions in the next few weeks as well. Um, so it it is being picked up as as a a, a workers issue, um, and we'll we'll follow through on that. Um, in terms of your your point around um, late abortions and the potential for women to travel, um, yeah, I think I think it's it's well made. And I think we have to recognise that we don't want to go back to the position we were before, where we have women travelling to um, access abortion services in England at a later stage in pregnancy and then having to deal with the issues around postmortems, um, returning remains to, to for burial um, and, and all of the trauma that goes with that. Never mind the, the trauma that they're already experiencing with the pregnancy that that has been very much wanted and wished for, um, but but has you know, obviously got um, a, a, a baby with a significant um, anomaly, um, and and those those are those are real issues for people. Often, if if it's a genetic anomaly, the postmortem is central to determining future pregnancies, um, and and to think about the the risks in future pregnancies um, for a reoccurrence. Um, so, so you know, the, the issue of just travelling for for an abortion is one thing, but it is all of the other logistics that go around that. Um, and we certainly don't want to end up back in situations where, where we have um, parents having to think of inventive ways to bring uh, a baby's remains back to um, the province to, to facilitate a, a, a burial. Can, uh, Chair, can I, can I just finish off by saying, while I certainly done a plug for the midwives, and, and I do, it's all, it's, all, it's all healthcare professionals, Michelle as well, because I am, I, I am acutely aware, even in Belfast, the paediatric uh, consultants and all the rest who raised issues around poverty, perinatal mental health. Um, and I just want to put my thanks for that because um, it's an issue of healthcare that um, people have twisted. And and I also want to say that I, I spoke to a constituent a couple of years ago who was carrying her pregnancy on despite receiving a really devastating um, uh, diagnosis and the um, the healthcare and support she got. I mean, she still fills up when she talks about it. So, um, so thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, um, Carol, and thank you, panel. And our, going then to Arlea Flynn. Go ahead, Arlea, please. Gormi Agat, Colin, and thanks to... Karen and, and Michelle for the, both your, your written um, briefs that you have provided to the, the committee and then also the, the oral briefs this morning. Um, I First of all, just to even go back to the issue that Jerry had touched on and Michelle and, and some of your opening comments as well around that issue of the private clinics, um, I find that really, really worrying um, to listen to, I think, given that there already is limited services here for, for people that need that type of healthcare um the fact that women then as you rightly said a lot of people would go onto the internet and google things when they're unsure of how to how to access different services and i just find that very concerning that if there is um particular clinics out there that is you know offering a service but that is almost misleading in a way um you know because the mental impact of a woman that's having to make that consideration is daunting enough without having to you know go through this additional process of, 
you know, that, um, you know, trying to be, you know, convinced or talked around to changing your mind when you're at that awful period in your life. I find that really, really worrying. Um, but in terms of the the bill um, and the legislation that's, that's being proposed, um, in, so I, I, I do think that the fact that there was that lack of consultation with the doctors who are obviously providing the service um, is a big gap. And I'm not sure if any of this has been communicated, um, obviously, as healthcare professionals, what conversations or communication communications you have had with the Minister of Health um, on these concerns about that lack of consultation. And I know, um, Michelle, I think it was in your correspondence, um, you have commented around um, whenever the, you know, the second reading of the bill was brought forward and some of those suggestions were made around clinicians' decisions, um, you know, that in your opinion was wrong and is showing that massive lack of trust and is almost insulting then to those doctors. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not a good place to be in. And at a time when we're trying to support um, our health and social care workers for all the great work that they're doing, um, it's just, it's not a nice place to be in. So I would just like to know on the back of just, you know, the things that you are both picking up, you know, around your own colleagues and your own environments, is any of that being fed back centrally into the Department of Health um, as to how, you know, some of your, your, your staff and your colleagues um, are feeling around that lack of consultation. Thank you. Um, I think um, probably NIACT have had, have attempted to have, um, you know, correspondence with the Minister and the Department of Health. And early on, there was, there was quite a bit of, of communication going on because um, the Department of Health um, had given us the go ahead to, to start um, providing AMA services when, when lockdown happened. And then it was ceased temporarily and then restarted. So at that stage, there was a lot of um, um, you know that well. There was a fair bit of communication, but I think an absence of of a framework and and direction. Um, the trusts very much went into this um, using the abortion regulations as a framework, um, but having no guidance and and no sort of um, no guidance on anything on clinical stuff on conscientious objection of how to to frame services. Um, so it, it's been very much done as a response to the pandemic. So I think um, now I do think that the, the communication will improve. Um, can I just maybe, um, you, you, you touched on the clinics. I maybe actually also should have said um, the... Uh, the clinics I was talking about actually promote um, abortion reversal treatment. Now, the Minister of, he of Health has actually pr provided a statement very recently um, to say that this is unsafe. So not only are we dealing with clinics that try to obstruct a woman, uh, women from having um, terminations, but they're also actually promoting a treatment, that an abortion reversal treatment that's unsafe. Um, and this has, has been demonstrated to be unsafe. So there's that issue. I maybe should have mentioned that at the time as well. And there's also a need for a public health information to go out here um, so that these women don't 
um, go to these clinics as first line. So we do need some sort of a public health campaign um, to, to get the information out there that these services are available locally. But hopefully, I, I'm hopeful it'll all come together um, over time. Um, but w the problem is we need guidance sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I, I would support Michelle on that. I, th I think I think the the need for frameworks and guidance and proper care pathways um, for women at all gestations is is hugely important. Um, as a college, we have be, ha, had uh, reached out to the minister on a number of occasions, both um, independently but also um, with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions Women's Committee. Um, so we, we have written on a number of occasions um, around this, um, but of, obviously with NIAC now and a, and a concerted group of health professionals, um, I, I would also be hopeful that that <coughs> dialogue will, will improve over the next period of time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Arlea. And going then to Jonathan Buckley. Go ahead, Jonathan, please. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Michelle and Karen. Um, my, my views have been well on the record in relation to my pro-life position and my support for the uh, intentions of the bill. So I suppose probably I would just first like to to focus on the, the, the screening element of this in which I think it was Karen talked about the, the checks and balances that are in place and some of the misleading quotes and representation uh, that were put out there in relation to to the bill. So I suppose probably my, my first point, and I'm sure that they would agree with me, that screening re results and advice should be given in a highly supportive environment uh, with accurate information. And it's with that, I, I would just like to ask for your comment in relation to uh, the experience experiences that were provided to all MLAs by uh, Don't Screen Us Out campaign, who talked about uh, women that uh, repeatedly were asked about uh, termination who who didn't want to do that but were repeatedly asked that even after they'd made their decision uh, to carry on their pregnancy and how you feel that that is a supportive environment uh, for a, a choice that, that that an individual had made um that is obviously the experiences of those women um it wouldn't be the experiences that i hear from my members um, you know, I, I think I think from a midwifery perspective, we are there in in a supportive way. Um, we we base our care around that woman centeredness. Um, so our our role is to provide information, interpret complex information for women, and to ascertain and be sure that those women um, have understood that information and are, are making a decision based on that. Um, I, I think. You know, any any woman who has that experience sh should be escalating that within the service if she's finding that the communication she's having within the service um, are are not what she would expect. Then then there are mechanisms to to raise that within the services, and that's what should be happening. Okay. Well, uh, sorry, is Michelle coming in or? No. no, I'm I'm happy no. with Karen's okay. response. No, well, well, Karen, obviously it, it is the experiences of, of some women within within our society, and therefore it, it does highlight that the, that there is a problem. So I think for for people to put a generic sort of circumstance surrounding um, the the situation whereby the support and packages there for for those women who who wish to carry on uh, their pregnancy 
it quite simply isn't and i'm not the only one saying that or don't screen us out are not the only people that are saying that surveys by the the down syndromes association have demonstrated that women did not recall being provided with enough information about down syndrome during their pregnancy uh, and you know we, we we could go on in relation to uh the stigmatism and, and the, the stereotypes that are being presented to those with disabilities and that's quite rightly what we've been hearing from people like heidi crowder uh, who, who feel that their life is of less value uh, because of the uh, discriminatory elements within uh, the, the the abortion regulations that have been that have been voiced upon the people of northern ireland so I suppose probably I would also like to ask, and you've obviously from the midwifery perspective, uh, how, how has there been any response from from your members, etc., as to how we deal with conscientious objection? I think it was mentioned briefly and touched by Michelle, and I suppose this is something that's being fed back to me continually by those within the, the medical professional uh, that feel that they're very uncomfortable with the conversations that are ongoing. Um, th thank you for that question. In terms of conscientious objection, um, uh, as I said in my briefing, I personally wrote to all our members um, in October 19 when decriminalisation was on the cards and advised them around conscientious objection um, around both their rights and responsibilities in relation to that. And we were also clear at that point that if we felt or if, if a midwife felt that she was not being reasonably afforded her right to conscientious objection that we would represent her in that situation. Our experience since that point has been that I receive no queries in relation to conscientious objection from midwives and from our members. I took an opportunity yesterday um, on, on a call with um, activists and workplace reps just to check in with them to see were they receiving any, any questions around it. Um, and again, they confirmed that it wasn't an issue that was being raised with them. Um, that being said, I still believe that we need a framework and we need clear guidance around conscientious objection, both to make sure that members understand their rights and responsibilities and know how to appropriately record their, their conscientious objection with their, their, um, their managers. And um, managers need to be clear and have guidance around how they record that and how they use that information. And um, so, so I think we, we, you know, we're quite clear around this, but it, it is not being raised um, by my members to, to my office as being an issue at the moment. Um, as I said earlier, the issues that I receive are more around um, practical issues around how they provide um, care to these women and provide safe, um, compassionate care to these women. Um, and maybe if I could just add something there. Um, I, th I think um, within the services we're talking about, um, the conscientious objection, it, it, when you consider the health service as a whole, it does affect a small minority of the workforce. So you have those working on sex and reproductive health, OBS and gynae, theatres and, and midwifery. Um, and, you know, as nurses, we are, are committed to respecting our conscientious objectors because we do have them within all of our services. Um, um, and, and certainly in SRH, um, our conscientious objectors um, are, are facilitated 100%. Having said that, the guidance from all the professional bodies is very clear on conscientious objection and the staff in SRH will have absolutely no problems in seeing the women for contraception after their treatment. Um, and, and, the, and as I say, the, the professional guidelines from, from nursing, from midwifery, from RCOG, from GPs, are, we're, we're all basically saying the same thing um 
but we do need a framework, as Karen said, so that we can roll out um, how we record this. What what do we do? Um, how do we cover theatres with staff who have conscientious objections? So, um, hopefully, this will resolve when we get a framework and get some guidance. Okay. We have we have many tests. They were pressurised into having abortions for, for, for many different reasons uh, and therefore feel a sense of regret following that initial decision. Um, Michelle, I think it was you that mentioned the abortion re uh, re reversal treatment that was being offered by some uh, and you, you made some statements in relation to a specific about uh, it being on, unsafe and an unfit practice. Uh, do you have any specific evidence to, to, to back up those claims? Yes, there was a study done several years ago that um, a clinical trial that had to be abandoned because of the um, issue of hemorrhage. A lot of women were bleeding very badly um, and the clinical trial had to be abandoned and the Minister of Health, I think it was yesterday on Twitter, ha has come out to say that this, this practice is unsafe. No, it's just I would be interested in seeing the specific evidence in, in that regard because I know that is a current live debate in, in other parts of the world, I think, in the, particularly the United States. Uh, yeah. So it's something that I would like to see factually backed up in relation yeah. to uh, before we, we would make particular statements about yeah. it. You know? Well, I, I mean, I certainly can see if I can get hold of that information for the Health Committee and as well as the NIACT report. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, thank you, um, Jonathan, and thank you, members of the panel, um, both Karen and Michelle. Um, that has been a really useful, um, I think, information and very informative session in relation to the issues that the committee are considering in relation to this bill. So I want to thank you both for attending our committee this morning, to thank you for your expertise and your compassion, and to wish you the very best in the time ahead. And uh, we can we can continue on with our consideration now. Thank you for that. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, thank you. Okay, members. Um, anything? Um, members wish to raise their say or Leah, you have your hand up. Um, yeah, sure. Just following on from some of that, and I suppose it's probably separate um, to the the bill consideration, um, but. I would like to propose maybe if the committee, so there was a couple of things we spoke about there around um, the protests that have been taking place, um, and, you know, some of those consideration of a buffer zone or how you can how you can try and sort of prevent some of that um, for, for patients and, and for the staff. Um, and then the other issue then is the one that, that I touched on in main remarks around that, um, the issue that come up around those private clinics and the, the, the lack of or the need for more of a public health um, campaign, you know, around, you know, that what services um, are there um, and, and what they entail. Um, if we could maybe write off to the minister just to, to get his response or try and get some more detail um, on those issues. And I know Jonathan raised it there at the end as well around that, the issue of the, the abortion um, uh, reversal, which I, I'm not across the detail of any of that, but I know that Michelle had referenced there about that the minister um, had said something public, publicly on it um, or on Twitter at least yesterday and I think it would be helpful even just to just to get some clarity around around that specific issue because that's that's the first I've came across that. 
Yeah, um, so I have Paula and then I see Carol indicating, so I'll go to Paula. Um, thank you, Chair. Just while we're still on the subject of, of the evidence we've been receiving, it's came to my attention this week that um, the Women's Support Network, um, their um, briefing didn't get through the um, Assembly's um, internet system because I think some of the words were blocked, automatically blocked. Um, so that's been submitted and I think it's in our, our, our table papers today. And I'm just wondering as we go forward, given the extensity of the work that the um, network have engaged with women around their submission, whether we can also find a slot to invite them along. Um, obviously, women are, are, are um, so affected by this issue, and I think that they should be given a voice, given their work in the submission. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Paula. Cheryl? Yeah, thank you, Chair. Chair, listen, I am really, I'm sure most of us are, but certainly I'm really, really alarmed at the idea that health and social care staff have to escort women to their cars, regardless if they're having a termination or not. That's completely unacceptable. Um, and, you know, like for me, shoving leaflets in people's hands is coercion and control. You know, one of the examples of it is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I, I don't know what we can do. I mean, we could write to the the justice minister as well as the health minister regarding this because this is this is a we're not infringing on anyone's right to protest. But it was either Michelle or Karen said to do it without intimidation and to do it responsibly. And and if it was any other place, we you know as I say, we covered this issue around respect and support for our, our ambulance, um, which is 100%. But this is absolutely, this needs to stop. It really does need to stop. And I would like us to try and agree um, if we could write to the Department for Justice and the Department for Health on this. Yeah, and, and uh, there is, I think, a private member's bill actually coming forward in that. But uh, I think I think the, the issue that was flagged there uh, is concerning as well, is that other people accessing other services, including mental health services, are being caught up in these protests as well. So it's not even simply impacting, which is bad enough, the, the, the women who are trying to access health services, but there, uh, there's, there's other services in the same sites. So it's having a broader impact. So I have an indication then from Alan, and then I have one from Pam. So go ahead, Alan. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, I would echo the comments of other committee members. Absolutely disgraceful uh, what's going on outside these clinics. Unacceptable. Um, and I think certainly the, uh, the, the Department of Justice uh, do need pressure put on them uh, because they are, I think they are the ministry that can, that, that can do something about it. Uh, and I'm just wondering if, uh, I mean, I wouldn't expect uh, charities or, or uh, other facilities to uh, seek legal redress through uh, uh, injunctions and stuff. Uh, but the, uh, I'm just wondering if, uh, if uh, the trusts uh, couldn't um, assist uh, clinics and so forth in, in taking um, legal action to get injunctions to create these buffer zones because it, it, it is going to have to be tackled legally and uh, it, it has to stop. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. And um, Pam? Yeah, thanks, Chair. I just wanted to add to that. I mean, obviously, the, the right to protest and freedom of speech um, must be protected, absolutely. And uh, 
but I do think that harassment and intimidation uh, of anybody in any of these situations is completely wrong. So I would be supportive of writing to the departments on that issue to see what can be done around that. Okay, thank you. Okay, members. So there's there's a number a number of issues there, in, including writing to the department and the Department of Justice on the on the. And I think Alan's suggestion is maybe that we also include the trusts in that letter around the protest around the protest that that we'd be urging all of those uh, bodies to see what can be done in relation to that. And then uh, the panel members have agreed to forward uh, further information to the committee. But we also want to write to the Department of Health in relation to public health guidance and information campaign and for information around and evidence around the reversal, uh, the reversal procedures that have been flagged as a concern there. Um, and, and are members content with those actions? Yeah. And then we also have the action where Paula had asked that, that the Women's Support Network which was quarantined in the system that we would ask to see if we could schedule an additional session with the Women's Support Network. Our members could handle that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, members, I am going to take a short break there um, before we move to our next session. So it's 11.24 now. Just turned, So if we could come back at 11.35, please. 11.35, we'll resume. Thank you. Hi, Colin, that's us back on now. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, members, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we are now going to move on to our next um, briefing session, and this is a briefing from Autism NA. So item seven there, and I refer members to a copy of the correspondence that we received from Autism NA at tab 8.1 of the pack and to a copy of the Interim Autism Strategy, which is a tab 8.2. So um, I would now like to welcome Miss Kerry Boyd, who is Chief Executive Officer with Autism NA. Kerry, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, hearing you fine, Kerry. Thank you, and you're very welcome to come in this morning. We're also joined by Dr. Arlene Cassidy, who's a Special Advisor. Can you hear me, Dr. Cassidy? Yep, thanks very much, Colin. Yes, thank yep. you. Thank you. And Miss Kelly Maxwell, who is Director of Family Support. Um, good morning, Kelly. And can you hear us okay? Good morning. I can hear you. Okay. Well, listen, um, members, we, we're, we're very aware that this is a, a key session for us in an area of some considerable concern for the committee and that the committee have been raising and have been seeking to, uh, to, to try to address the issues arising from... Um, provision or lack of provision for autism services and the pressure that that's putting on individuals, families um, and, and health services. And uh, I think it's, it's a session that we're really looking forward to in that regard and one that's very important to us. So you're all very, very welcome to Falsha Rovalig, Fajin Koshta, Slancha. Very welcome to Health Committee this morning. Thank you for coming along and giving us your time and your expertise and your experience in relation to these matters. And um, I'll go back to yourself, Kerry, maybe if you want to outline how you would like to do the briefing, and then we can maybe get a question and answer session with yourselves and members following that briefing. Okay, I have a, obviously a 10-minute presentation here. Is that okay? Um, uh, just a verbal presentation on the issues that are affecting the autism community. This isn't going to be about autism and I as a charity. It's going to be about the issues that are affecting our adults and families throughout Northern Ireland. Okay. 
Yep. So do you want me just to start calling? Is that okay? Go ahead, Carrie. Yes, thank you. Thank you. As a charity representing autism families and autistic adults across Northern Ireland, it is true to say that the situation for this very vulnerable community is deeply concerning. There are many, many issues that are detrimentally affecting our autism community, as you know, as public representatives. But my biggest concern is that these issues are not being treated with the urgency that is so needed. It should also be noted that COVID-19 has been a particularly difficult time for this community. As some support services were closed completely and things like autism assessments were also delayed. The unexpected changes that so many of our children and adults went through with the closure of workplaces, schools and um, social activities has had a very detrimental effect on, on anxiety levels and stress levels of um, our adults and young people and obviously the emotional well-being of them too. We knew 10 years ago, whenever the Autism Act was passed here, that there was going to be an increase in diagnosis levels and prevalence. And this is what has inevitably happened. The reason why we knew that is because through the likes of ourselves and other organisations and other charities, we have raised the awareness of autism um, throughout Northern Ireland with the likes of families, the general public, as well as professionals. And this has inevitably led to an increase in diagnosis levels. However, with this huge increase, there hasn't been the same amount of investment and funding put to that to be able to support these families and children. We led the lobby back in 2011 for many years, and most of you know this, that Autism and I led this lobby. The Autism Act is today the most comprehensive piece of single disability legislation globally. However, it has been severely hindered because of the failure to implement the Northern Ireland Autism Strategy from 2013 to 2020 and the resulting three action plans by the Department of Health. The Autism Act 2011 is current and binding and it is the responsibility of the NI Executive to ensure that the Autism Strategy is fulfilled, but this has not happened. Only one out of the three action plans were ever completed by 2020. It should be noted that there's currently an interim autism strategy that Mr. Schwann introduced a couple of months ago for 2021 to 2022. But again, this strategy does not have any measurable targets attached to it, nor will it be independently evaluated. Therefore, how can we measure and assess if things are actually getting better for our autism community? The latest prevalence rates from the Department of Health, uh, their monitoring report they have to give out every year annually, show that one in 22 school-age children have autism in Northern Ireland. Autism is the fastest growing disability in Europe. Although the rest of the UK does not specifically um, count the amount of children coming through, we still know that they have a lower prevalence rate than Northern Ireland. In fact, Hong Kong at the minute is stated to be have the highest prevalence rates in the world with one in 27 school-age children being diagnosed there with autism. However, as we know, with one in 22 here, we actually have the highest prevalence rates in the world at the minute, but nothing's being done to support that. Health inequalities are arising also due to families having to wait in excess of two years to get a, private di or to get a diagnosis of autism. And therefore, many are looking to private diagnoses um, to avoid these lengthy waiting lists. In the Belfast Trust, children are waiting over two years to be assessed, yet families in the Southern Trust only have to wait up to 13 weeks to have an assessment. And I would like to know why is this happening and why are there such disparities between each trust area? 
every autism family should have the same level of service available to them and should not have to wait for an assessment and support because of where they live. Because of where they live. Obviously, this is perpetuating a postcode lottery. Waiting lists as of April 2021 um, showed that 180 children were waiting in Southern Trust um, less than 13 weeks. Um, in the Southeastern Trust, there was a 10-week wait for 63 children. However, the Northern Trust had the biggest backlog with over 1,800 children waiting up to 490 days, over a year for a diagnosis. Similarly, the Belfast Trust has 1,700 children waiting over two years for a diagnosis. And the Western Trust, again, um, over 1,000 children waiting up to 720 days, nearly two years. Autism is categorised as a disability under the Disability Discrimination Act. An autistic child or adult should not be disadvantaged due to their disability, and therefore the huge delays in accessing and assessment and early intervention is unacceptable. I would like to ask you, is there any other disability that takes over two years to get a diagnosis for, and in the case of adults, nearly over four years? Private diagnosis costs up to £1,400, with private assessment clinics on the rise due to these waiting lists. This is causing, obviously, serious health inequalities. Those that can afford a private diagnosis are getting supports and access to supports quicker, as access to these vital supports nearly always um, relies on an autism diagnosis. But I believe that no family should have to be at a disadvantage due to their economic status and whether they can afford a private diagnosis or not. If we look at a recent example of a parent who is part of one of Autism and I support groups, she told us that her daughter, age seven, was diagnosed with autism at four years of age, but she had to wait nearly two years to get that diagnosis. However, her son is now three and student start nursery in September, and she was not prepared to wait two years for a similar diagnosis. Therefore, she had to borrow money from her friends and family to gain a private diagnosis, and obviously she has to re repay all that money back. And she said to me, she felt bad because she was lucky that she had a very supportive family to be able to, you know, help her out with that sort of um, that that financial constraint on her. But she says so many parents that she knows of and we know of that are in similar situations that simply can't afford a private diagnosis, and they're all in these lengthy waiting lists. Ten years ago, the five health and social care trusts did not accept a private diagnosis. However, they all do today. It should be the NI executive's responsibility to ensure the health trusts are delivering these assessments within the recommended 13-week time period in order to give all of these autistic children and adults the right support as soon as possible. And therefore, I would call for an investigation into the waiting times for assessment, and it needs to be carried out urgently. Another area that deeply concerns me is the disparities in prevalence rates in each trust area. If we look at the latest stats from the Department of Health, it states that the prevalence of autism in Belfast is three times higher than that in the, in the South Southern Trust. For example, they state within the report that there's one in 14 children being diagnosed with autism in Belfast compared to one in 48 in the Southern Trust. Therefore, can you as members of the Health Committee ask the Minister why these disparities are happening and whether we obviously need research into this area? Finally, during the past, um, 18 months, Autism and I has worked on a private members bill proposed by Pam Cameron, um, MLA, who's also the chair of the all-party group in autism. We've been meeting virtually over um, the, during the pandemic, and obviously um, Autism and I provides the secretary of the all-party group. So we've been working on this for um, over a year now. And the aim of the bill is to address the lack of accountability 
independent scrutiny and transparency, which has curtailed the key elements within the current Autism Act. The consultation process for this private members bill took place in October 2020, and it attracted an excess of 1,800 responses. And that's more than any responses in Northern Ireland history. So it shows you the need and the concern that our families and autistic adults have with the current status here. The bill will introduce an autism reviewer, which will be independent of the Department of Health, that will ensure the autism strategy is fulfilled properly this time. It will also ensure that measurable targets are set, as well as a consistent early intervention, service, adult services, and training, to name but a few amendments. And this will all help support our autism community. It is currently at the end of the drafting stage, and we hope that it will reach the Chamber very soon. And we also hope that all of you here today will be able to support that. Finally, I would like to say that autistic children and adults are a vibrant part of our community today and in the future. And I feel that we are all failing them. They, you know, they are friends, our neighbours, colleagues and family, and they deserve to have the same rights, support services and opportunities as every other person in Northern Ireland. And therefore change needs to happen and it needs to happen now. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Kerry. And I have to say, um, I, I absolutely agree with the what you're saying there and um, in relation to no family having to borrow money I mean this is this is putting families into debt or or else there are circumstances where families aren't able to borrow that money and therefore putting them at a, at a huge disadvantage and the inequalities that flow from that and I think there's two major inequalities here the first is that financial inequality and the, the ability or not to go private and the need for anyone to go private in what is supposed to be a publicly accessible service and also the regional disparities and inequalities that you have flagged up there. And I suppose that's the, the area for my first question is in relation to what is your own assessment of how that regional disparity has come into place and how it could be addressed um, going forward? Um, the regional disparity, do you mean about the prevalence rates or do you mean about the waiting times? Across. Across, the waiting times, sorry, the waiting times the waiting across times? the various trusts okay. and the different um, the postcode, the postcode lottery, the postcode lottery element across the trusts. What's your assessment of how that has arisen and how might that be addressed urgently in the future? Well, I feel that obviously there's a lack of investment. Um, you know, the Autism Act was um, brought through ten years ago, and the resulting autism strategy and the prevalence rates from then have went up. Um, you know, expense. Uh, you know, they went up by 200% or something since that, and therefore the investment hasn't followed through. Um, I feel that um, we have asked the Minister um, a number of times, Minister of Health a number of times, why there are such disparities between the trusts and why the waiting times are different. And this is why I feel that I'm coming to you today to say, can somebody please put, do an investigation into this and find out why families in the Belfast Trust have to wait two and a half years, whereas somebody who's living in the Southern Trust can get an assessment or start the assessment process within 13 weeks. What is the difference that's happening there and what are the processes that are different? We don't know as a charity. We're not assessing these children. We are only hearing the families coming through to our helpline, which receives over 5,000 calls a year. And one of them, one of the particular, um, obviously, interests is about the... Um, the waiting times and about how they can't wait any longer and they're feeling forced to then go and access a private diagnosis. So we don't know. 
Okay, thank you. And and also, I think it is the uh, the issue about the private referrals is one that's usually worrying. And I have tried on a number of occasions to get some information as to the levels of those. Those figures are not being captured by the trust um, or by the department. Um, so that in itself is a concern in that if we're not measuring it, how are we going to address it or, or act upon it? Um, but I'm just wondering, has there been any... Uh, discussion or engagement with yourselves or with any of the other charities or experts in this from the department to see how how that issue can be addressed or any of the other issues is there any current ongoing consultation with you in relation to waiting times no um they they they, they are overwhelmed at the minute obviously with the COVID 19 um as well over the past year um assessments have been delayed um so they are at an all-time high the waiting list but this was going on Previous to 2020, we know this has been going on for a number of years now. Um, for whenever they, they, there is a that, um, I can't, I can't understand why they're looking at these figures every year. The Autism Act, when it was brought in, um, made the Department of Health um, produce this annual monitoring report with all these fantastic statistics that I'm just after telling you about, and they they're reading this every year, but they're still not doing anything about it. And they can see the prevalence rates and they know the need there. So what is the point in producing all of these stats if they're not going to do anything about it? The figures are there, they speak for themselves. The waiting times, the numbers, you know, and that is what I presume whenever we led the lobby 10 years ago to get all of this, to get all these statistics and these reports and all, was to then be able to plan, to be able to support um, our autism community. But clearly it's not. And I can't, I can't sit here and tell you any more I think it's up to you as, as public representatives to do something about this and to have to make that change. And we have worked, as I said, in this private members bill that we feel will make that change. Um, um, you know, it shouldn't have got to the stage where you have to introduce a private members bill, but that's the only way we feel as if it will, it will ensure that this will happen. Okay, thank you, Kerry. And so I'm going to go then to members. I'm going first of all to our Deputy Chair, Pam Cameron. I then have Paula, Kara, and Jerry in that order. So I'll go back then to Pam. Go ahead, please. Thank you, Chair. And I suppose from the outset, I'd better declare an interest as the Chair of the All Party Group on, on Autism as the named member who is who's bringing forward the, the Private Members Bill on autism and hopefully that is very close to introduction to the assembly and, and the purpose of that private members bill is to strengthen the autism act which is already in place um, i want to thank uh, kerry arlene and kelly for uh, being here today and for briefing us on what is a, a, a very important subject i think to all of us as, as committee members um Kerry, you mentioned that uh, you feel the interim autism strategy is not fit for purpose. Can you explain why you feel that? And can you also tell us why you feel the previous autism strategy has failed? Thanks. Okay. Um, well, very, very bluntly, without getting into every single point of the new interim autism strategy or the previous strategy, neither of them have measurable targets attached to them. And therefore, if we don't have any measurable targets, how can we assess if things are getting completed and if things are actually getting any better. Um, if we look at the current autism strategy, let me just say, um, one of the points is they said that they will deliver focused training that will enable our workforce to respond to specific needs of autistic people. That's one of their um, targets. 
but it's not measurable. How many people are you going to train up? What, are, what, what differences are going to be made? How is that going to be assessed? Um, how many adults with autism are in the workplace? We know that they're um, only 22%, which is less than the average of anybody who, uh, the disability community in the UK. Um, so unless we have those measurable targets attached to the new autism strategy, the longer term one, which they're creating at the moment, there is no point, in my opinion, because we can't assess if it's actually working or not. Um, thank you, um, Kerry. That's great to hear that. I, I'm not going to hog any more time because like, it's important that other members get uh, questions on about this. Obviously, we have um, done an awful lot of work together uh, as an APG, and I just wanted to put on record my thanks to all of you for the incredible amount of work that you've put in over the years, and particularly in this last year um, as we work together with this private members bill. So I just wanted to thank you at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. And going to Paula Bradshaw. Go ahead, Paula, please. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, ladies, for coming this morning to Health Committee. Um, last night, um, the Alliance Ability Group met with um, Deirdre Shakespeare. As you know, she's campaigning for Harry's Law around the respect and seclusion. And, and not to, I don't want you to comment on that individual case per se, but I just wanted to get your understanding of how um, good and, and how well the teachers in, in mainstream schools and special schools really understand the complex needs of children living with autism. Thank you. Um, I don't want to hog this all today because I've got two other colleagues with me and I'm going to let Ke Kelly, do you want to answer that about the mandatory teacher training and obviously the need for it? Oh, she disappeared. Don't know what happened there. Sorry, I'll answer that then. Um, obviously, Autism NI has been um, lobbying for the past number of years for the need for mandatory teacher training. Um, we feel that this is obviously where the child is spending the, the vast amount of time of their, uh, of their day. And anybody that's working with that child and supporting that child should understand their needs. And it seems to be like completely common sense that um, all teachers, especially within mainstream schools, because you have to remember 78% of children with autism are in mainstream education, okay? And we know that all of those teachers are not trained up in autism. We know from our helpline, um, you know, parents coming through and there has been issues with teachers. However, we also know that teachers, the ones that we have spoken to, um, really do want this training and really do want to understand their child as a vocation for them. Um, and we have had so many teachers coming to our training on a Saturday morning in their own time and paying for it themselves to gain that training. And But we know that there is definitely a need for better understanding and better support. And that begins with education, because it's not just about the child and the, and the teacher understanding their autism. Obviously, educational um, outcomes is, is priority. But also, it, I think um, it starts a, a culture change as well where teachers who better understand a child can work better with them and other children in the class are watching all of this too. You know, they're, they're not assuming then that that autistic child who the teacher maybe has issues with and there's been, you know, told off and blah, blah. They're not assuming that that child is being badly behaved anymore because they're understanding better. And it starts with the teacher understanding, in my opinion. So we, we're totally behind this. We, we Obviously, there was a debate in uh, January 2020 in the chamber over this and... Peter Weir at the time, the Minister for um, Education, had said that he was going to I felt, implement this mandatory teacher training and it never happened. 
Um, and that's another part of why the PMB, I feel, really needs to go through. Things need to change. And I think the class, and as you say, Paula, is where it needs to start first. Thank you. Thank you. My second question is in relation to um, the, the support that um, charities and community-based organisations like Solus and my, my constituency provide to individuals, but also their family and, and their role and, and position within society. And just wonder if you could make a comment on the, the difficulties in actually attracting funding to provide the services in the community, um, and whether you think that part of the issue is that it falls halfway between health and education. Thank you. Kelly, do you want to answer that one? Yes, that's no problem. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I'm Kelly. Okay, so Paula, obviously this has been an ongoing issue um, and the Autism Act sought to address that and, and the Autism Act was before its time because programmes for government in 2016 only started to look at departments working collaboratively where the Autism Act built that in in 2011. We also have Stephen Agnew's Duty to Cooperate Act which, which came into place I think about 2014 but yet we continue to see separate pathways for children in terms of not just funding, Paula, but also assessment. So the child who starts a health assessment with the NCHS has to start a separate education assessment. And sometimes families aren't informed of that. So they spend two years waiting on the health assessment and think that's going to help with support in school and then get information and knowledge that says they actually have to then start the education process. So absolutely, the private member's bill is, is also looking at, as Kerry spoke earlier, the need for investment. And that need is huge for both children and adults. And there was a report out in 2016 by Autistica, and that actually looked at the life expectancy difference between autistic individuals and their non-autistic peers, and there is a 16-year difference. So in terms of longevity and health and education, along with other um, departments needing to work together, is an absolute essential in terms of outcomes across a lifetime for autistic people. No, thank you very much, Kelly. That's very comprehensive. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, thank you, Paula, and thank you, panel. And Chiara, going then to Chiara Hunter. Sorry, sorry, there was a wee delay there. It wouldn't let me unmute. <clears throat> thank you, Chair. And I'd just like to thank the panel, uh, Kerry, Kelly, and Arlene for being here this morning. And you can tell these are tireless advocates um, for people with autism, children, adults, and family. So um, just to say that we really, really appreciate the hard work that you do, and it's evident how much you care. Um, I just have a few questions. One is around, um, under the social uh, inclusion priority of the document, I think this is really, really important. And I wanted to ask around uh, what kind of training is currently available for first responders uh, on how to approach people with autism in the case of an emergency uh, and if you think it, it, it could be improved. Kelly, do you want to answer that about the awareness card and that? I think Arlene had her hand up, did you Arlene? Yeah, just briefly, uh, but Kelly, yes, you please please major on this. I just have a small 
but hopefully significant point to make. Um, there was a cross-departmental working group set up by the Minister of Justice some years ago to look at um, what measures needed to be put in place to red flag individuals, not just with autism, but with other social and communication issues. Um, and that um, cross-departmental committee, you know, it consisted of PSNI, um, you know, sort of fire and rescue, you know, looking at exactly the point that you that you have mentioned. And uh, a report, a report was compiled in an incredible 18 months, submitted to the minister for action, and nothing ever happened. Um, we wrote to the Minister of Justice at the time and uh, to ask what was happening, but no response ever came. I think we wrote on two occasions. So a work has been done. It's in somebody's archives uh, in the Department of Justice. But I know, I think it was led, that working group was led by, I think it was probation at the time. Um, so just a point of information before Kelly uh, gives you the, the, the sort of the more meaning meat, meat of this uh, discussion. Over to you, Kelly. Sorry. Thank, Thank you. Kelly. Yeah. yeah. Autistic individuals and, and their families do call our helpline. As Kerry said, over 5,500 calls we take per year. And in regards to that, we do hear from autistic individuals who, who will describe both environments and experiences not taking account of their differences. And and actually, we, Autism A&I, even before I commenced working for the organisation about 10 years ago, had an initiative where there was training for um, PSNI, Fire Brigade, Ambulance Service, just to name a few. And in actual fact, we developed an awareness card off the back of that initiative. And the awareness card was reviewed recently by autistic adults. Um, in the organisation and in actual fact it's there to assist when you're out and about and, and you're feeling overwhelmed then you, you, you can carry that but in terms of training for frontline staff I don't know of any initiative where there is mandatory training for frontline staff in terms of NHS and um, that would need to be explored by the committee but certainly autistic people would articulate that it is very much needed. Sometimes they are described as not engaging with services or hard to reach. And what autistic people regularly tell us and their families is that those, those services seldom hear their voice. So they will discuss their needs. They will discuss their sensory difficulties. They will clearly articulate what they feel they can partake in. But for some reason, that's not heard on occasion. Thank you, Kelly. And th thank you, Arlene. I think that's really important to note. And hopefully we as a committee can chase that up with the Department of Justice also. So thank you for, for highlighting that. Another thing is I must declare a, a, an interest here. I actually have a family member who's currently on a waiting list uh, for an autism assessment. So I kind of know firsthand um, the, the stress and the uncertainty, the frustration that that can cause. Um, but just on a, a, for those struggling with a later in life uh, diagnosis with autism, what support mechanisms are in place um, currently for things like housing, for example? Um, and how do you feel that this could be improved? Carrie? Yep. So we'll go back to yourself, Gary. Is it? Kelly's. Sorry, Kelly's by dance. Kelly, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Certainly. Go ahead, Kelly. 
There, there is no collaborative um, multi-agency um, approach is, is the first thing I would say in terms of an adult getting a diagnosis and receiving follow-up support. Um, there, there are some initiatives in terms of the Belfast Trust would have a Belfast Adult Autism Service. Mm-hmm. And the Northern Trust would have a Northern Adult Autism Service. But again, there is no consistency throughout the trust. It also relies on the autistic individual to go to a central location. So that mm-hmm. in itself may be a barrier for some of our individuals. Um, so again, that, that is something that, that does need looked at in terms of consistency and providing pathways of support in terms of the adult pathways there are three programs of care learning disability physical disability and then mental health and what we find is even children who have been receiving support in terms of transitioning to the adult world they often fall between those gaps because Mm -hmm. they they don't quite fit mental health they don't fit learning disability and actually then there is a lack of support. I think that, that's, that, that answer is spot on. I mean, certainly I'm sure there's no member on this panel that they haven't had you know, someone come to our office and, and voice their frustrations about the gaps in service. Um, just, just one last question and it's around, I see another priority within the strategy is about the availability of more short break services. Um, we know this is a great benefit uh, to those individuals and families uh, concerned. Can you outline more information on this? Uh, and also, what can we as elected representatives and as health committee members, what can we do to best support uh, families and siblings of those with autism? Just before you come in, Lee, can I ask everyone that's not contributing to make sure they're on mute. There's background noise coming through there. It's quite distracting. So if I can just ask everyone, or if broadcasting can put people on mute. Um, so it might, it, it might be, it, I wonder, is it, uh, is it maybe coming through your microphone, Arlene, or Kerry? I think everyone else yeah. is on mute, so. No, no. Okay. Okay, so we'll give it we'll, we'll give it a try there, Arlene. Hopefully, hopefully it seems to have reduced our now. So we'll we'll give it a try. Go ahead, please. Um, could could I defer to Kerry and Kelly on this one? Someone's yeah. just knocked at my door. Certainly, Arlene. <laughs> Absolutely, that that's a that's a frequent hazard uh, with with, yeah. with these Zoom meetings. So we understand. So I'll go, Thank Kerry. You. Is it yourself or or Kelly then? Okay, well, Kelly, I'm sure I'll be able to um, give you more insight into this because. Um, from the calls that we've got through the helpline but actually we i did a interview there last week it was on radio ulster about this um and you know respite care is obviously um extremely important for so many of our families and young people as well um obviously the families especially for the past year um so many um services have been closed and therefore um it hasn't been um as available as it was before for those families um, and even things like the day centres and that, that so many of our adults with autism were attending, um, some of them have been shut um, completely. Some of them are back up and running, but the adults are only there maybe one day a week instead of three days a week. And all of these changes in routines um, are is, is very disruptive for not only that adult, but the entire family have to deal with that as well. 
and it can come out in behaviours and frustrations um, with those adults. Um, but respite care for the mental health of our families and parents is extremely important. And we know that even before the pandemic, that there wasn't enough respite services in Northern Ireland. And Kelly will be able to tell you about um, some of the waiting lists for some of the, the respite care as well. Um, it's, it's unacceptable. And again, you're right, you're, you're right, Cara. It's one of those issues that needs to be addressed um, because we all know that if the parent or carer is not in the right place and and is having um, issues through their mental health and that they need that that bit of respite to do um, for themselves as well as the child. But Kelly, do you want to talk about maybe the wait the waiting times within the trust to access that? So when you you receive a diagnosis of autism, Cara, there is an autism pathway called the six steps mm -hmm. and steps of that when you get your assessment and your diagnosis really lays out the types of support that are available and and really there should be a child and family planning meeting that would look at the services you have just listed so whether that's respite short care ot speech and language all of those specialist services should be looked at and family should be a part of planning for it through our helpline, we're regularly told that doesn't happen. Families have to go to local representatives. They have to push. They, we have 23 support groups across Northern Ireland. We regularly hear through participation. Why does no professional tell you about these? Why do you have to hear from other parents and carers? And then you're, you're made to feel like a pushy parent for asking if you can access them. So for me, Kerry's absolutely right. No, there are lots of parents and carers that haven't had a break in over 14 months. They are occurring 24-7, 365 days a year. And, and respite and short breaks were severely impacted by the pandemic. But even before that, access to them and waiting lists. Um, and if we think of assessment waiting list being two years, some areas for respite would have the equivalent. So mm -hmm. in actual fact, it should never get to the point where the NPHS is failing families so much that they use their own resources to take legal action and have to push the judicial review. Mm -hmm. And Broken Promises detailed this issue in 2006. It was an issue in 2011 when the Autism Act came in. And here we are, 10 years later, we talk about outcomes-based accountability and, and these issues are exacerbated. So for me, I hope that answers your question, Cara. No, that's very helpful. That's very helpful, Kelly. And, and again, just to put on record, uh, my thanks and my party's thanks for the work uh, that you all do. And uh, I think it's truly unforgivable that we have um, children and adults waiting years uh, for a diagnosis and families having to go into debt to get that diagnosis. I think we're really failing them. So just want to thank you again for your hard work and your answers today. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl and uh, Pamela. I'm going then to Jerry. Cheryl, go ahead, Jerry. Hi, thanks, Chair. Thanks, panel, um, for your, your, your contributions. Um, and just to kind of concur with, with Carrie's sentiments that, you know, I think obviously the department and, and the state is ultimately feeling people with, with autism and their families uh, or people who are seeking to get uh, a diagnosis. Um, and I suppose that that pressure that people are forced to go and seek a private diagnosis is really, really uh, concerning. I know obviously there was a lot of... Um, 
highlighting of that in the news in, in the last few weeks, uh, I think from yourself, Carrie. Um, but it's, it's the same determinant in terms of NHS waiting lists, uh, class is determining this. Um, you know, people are waiting on NHS waiting lists to get um, elective surgeries or to see a consultant, and people are also waiting uh, on a, a diagnosis uh, for autism. And the same uh, principle there is that, you know, if people can afford to pay it or afford or are able uh, to get into debt, then they, get, they can get access to services, and that should not be the case whatsoever. It's an absolute failure uh, of our current uh, system. Um, maybe if somebody could just uh, tease out to kind of what, what is the sort of impact on later diagnosis? I mean, obviously distress and, and worry, but is there any uh, cognitive or developmental um, issues uh, with a with a later diagnosis? If somebody could speak to that, that would be uh, helpful. Thanks. Kelly, do you want to? Well, I obviously you, all of you are aware that early intervention is key, and therefore a diagnosis as early as possible, and to be able to gain those supports as early as possible is so important for a child's de developmental um, abilities and you know waiting up to two years to get a diagnosis and can I just say as well because I think there's an awful lot of um, focus on the waiting times and for me working in this area the waiting times is only the start of the journey once a child has a diagnosis you don't talk about waiting times to actually get a diagnosis for anything you usually talk about waiting times for support or treatment or whatever it is that's only the start of it to get the diagnosis. Then we need adequate support to follow that up. And we all know that those services are poor as well. So there's so many issues. It's so bleak, you know, waiting two years to get a diagnosis and then families are coming to autism and I and saying, um, right, what do we do now? Um, and we're saying, okay, we'll send out if we have the funding to do so, an early intervention team to your house to do a six week intervention and help with visuals and help you understand autism and blah, blah. And quite often, a lot of that is funded by um, uh, charitable trusts in England or whatever. It's not funded by the government. And therefore, you know, what part of this private members bill is um, a consistent early intervention service throughout Northern Ireland, um, which is straight in there, straight after diagnosis. But yes, a delay in diagnosis inevitably, um, it, it's, very, it's, it's so critical so it is to get that diagnosis as soon as possible and get those supports in there as soon as possible. And to get that understanding as well for the parent as well. They, they don't know, you know, quite often they don't they don't know whether the child has autism, some do, some don't, but they, they don't know how to support them. So if they don't have a diagnosis, they, they don't know what to do. So for those two years, can you imagine the frustration and the worry and the stress of having um, to guess how to support their child or not knowing actually what it is that is causing their child's behaviors. So for a number of reasons, um, the delay in diagnosis is just unacceptable. Um, but Kelly, do you want to talk about early intervention and why it's so important? Yeah. So assessment provides parents and carers with information about their child's development and behaviour and should enable them to tap into further support to meet their needs. Any assessment should be honest about the, the strengths, the areas for support and provide a framework for understanding that enhances knowledge of strategies to support an autistic person. And that includes promoting positive autistic identity. Lack of access to timely assessments and supports may lead to individuals being unable to fully participate as active members in their community. And early intervention equips families with 
strategies. Um, it looks at routines. It looks at how to meet the individual needs of that child. So some children will have sensory differences. And when that word is used, very often you, you need to look at what that might be because the people who haven't been in the autism world, the parents will often say, well, I didn't know chewing the, the string of the hood with a sensory need. And when I took that off, my child just couldn't cope with being in a classroom. So, you know, for, for a particular parent, if that was the case, they, they were just like, why did nobody explain this to me? So actually getting down and, and looking at routines that can be implemented that support children, but also we have autistic adults, adults mm-hmm. who, who have waited 40, 50 years and, and are being diagnosed, some longer than that. And, and in actual fact, they will say an assessment was pertinent because in actual fact, there, there was the risk of home placement breakdown, relationship breakdown, issues with employment. And getting their autism diagnosis has not only enabled them to, to understand years of having different labels or different perspectives of individuals placed upon them but it also provides a framework of reaching a community that that actually connects them probably for the first time that they they have felt they connect somewhere to something and can start to understand their autism in a way that they couldn't before they were always on the periphery thanks kelly and carrie just a couple of quick questions and Carrie, I think you said uh, it doesn't sort of end with, with the um, diagnosis, and, and that's obviously true. I mean, we know that the NHS is uh, two to 3,000 nurses short uh, in the capacity as it is. Do you or do I have any set, a sense of what would be needed in terms of to meet the support systems required for people uh, with autism? Um, any, um, sorry, a couple, two, two quick questions. Uh, I mean, obviously the, the process in, in terms of statementing, which is obviously wider than, than autism. Uh, my experience uh, dealing with constituents is that it's a very long and arduous uh, process to get you know support uh, and education. Um, so maybe if you want to uh, speak to that. And then just, just finally, um, if I, I think I heard Kerry's, if I heard her correctly, did you say that we have the highest levels of autism here uh, or one of the highest levels of autism? Mm-hmm. Um, was that accurate uh, comment? If I heard you correctly, apologies if I didn't. And, and if so, uh, is there any uh, understanding or reason uh, for that? Uh, that's all my questions. Thank you. Um, well, to start with the um, easiest one to answer probably is the, the prevalence rates. Yes, one in 22 school-age children being diagnosed in Northern Ireland is, from my understanding, the highest in the world. Because if you um, look at the stats, they say Hong Kong has one in 27 school-age children. And they're officially the the highest in the world. So if we're saying we've got one in 22, which the Department of Health is saying through our latest stats, then officially we do have the highest um, autism levels in the world. And I think one of the reasons um, is because we all know that autism wasn't diagnosed 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that's why Kelly was saying there's so many adults coming through um, with autism who are maybe 40 or 50 and they're getting their diagnosis later in life. It wasn't diagnosed in Northern Ireland until the 1990s in Ireland, to be able to tell you about that. So, you know, the late 1990s. So you're only getting those adults coming through now. But previous to that, they weren't getting a diagnosis. 
And I feel that all of the work that um, Autism and I did over the years and Arlene did leading the lobby for the, the Autism Act, um, because of that better awareness, people now understand better that that child wasn't being awed in class. They weren't, you know, it, it, those behaviours weren't just strange, blah, blah, blah. It was because they didn't understand or because they were picking things up wrong. And the reason was because they had autism. And I would say if all of us thought back to our primary school class, there's probably one or two children there who maybe were on the spectrum but didn't have a diagnosis. So that is why the prevalence rates I feel are so high is through better awareness. And I feel like the Autism Act was one of the things um, that really escalated that because of the awareness raising from the likes of uh, Autism and I and other charities as well, raising awareness that people are understanding it better. And I think that's why. And we're lucky that we have that. And we're lucky that we have the act, but we're not doing anything then to support the children after this or adults after the diagnosis. What is the point of diagnosing all of these children and adults with autism if there's not adequate support services after the fact? Um, and, you know, you're right about statements as well. You know, we all know there's issues there too and getting the right support within the school as well. Um, and that's why, you know, we led, we're leading the lobby to try and change things and get mandatory teacher training um, implemented. We feel like um, it should be done. We feel a like good autism practice for teachers is good practice in general for all kids, actually. Um, and we feel that, you know, we know that the teachers, um, well, the teachers we have spoken to want this and need this. And, you know, there, there are just so many issues, um, Jerry. But, yeah, the, the prevalence rates, I think, are definitely in relation to the um, awareness that we have now. Um, and I feel that, you know, if um, there was the same awareness in, um, in other parts of the world, that the rates would probably be the same. Um, the likes of England, um, their prevalence rates are officially one in a hundred, they say. However, with our Autism Act, um, we count children in England. They don't count children. So they're taking a sample of the population. So it's, you're comparing apples and pears. So if they were to count children in England, I would say it probably would be the same as well. Um, so, so that's the differences. Um, I can't remember what the other questions were, sorry, at the start. What was the first question you asked? Uh, so hi, there was a lot of them. Uh, I think it was about capacity. So I was using the reference that you know we're mm -hmm. three thousand nurses short in our NHS for a waiting list. So do any sense of what staff it would take for the state to provide this assistance after diagnosis? You know, do we have that? Short answer is no. I don't because you know I run a charity, obviously with nearly thirty staff, and we all have targets to meet. And I would know that. I don't know the waiting list are two years, so they must know how many, how big their teams are, or how small their teams are to be able to deal with this. Um, I don't know whether their their teams are working full time, part time, or what's happening. But what I do know is that an awful lot of staff are moving from um, the NHS into private sector and doing the diagnosis there. And there probably is a lack of maybe um, specialists. Would that be right, Kelly? Um, that people yeah. are moving from that, and that worries me too, because obviously. The less expertise we have, uh, the less able they are then obviously to diagnose and the less capacity they have to diagnose. And so that is happening too. But I don't know the figures of how much would be needed. That's up to the trust. You know, they need to sort that out. Sorry. I think, okay, I think it's important, Jerry, just, just to remember, we can always look at the gaps and look at what we don't have. But what we have to do is look at how people are struggling whilst they're on waiting list assessments the impact that's having across lifespan. So autism is not a mental health condition, although many autistic people have co-occurring conditions. And in actual fact, through our helpline, we'll report having to reach crisis 
before anything is done. And one autistic person said, if I was physically sick, I would not have had to wait as long. Mm. And, and for me, there is something in there that we've got to keep the focus on needing to do better earlier and not picking up the cost of late intervention because for some of those autistic individuals, we, we won't be able to do that due to the life expectancy gaps. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm going then to go to Alan and Carol uh, Nicholin. So I'm conscious of time at this stage. So if, if uh, members could be as brief as possible with your questions, please go ahead, Alan. Sorry, sorry, Chairman, struggling again with my mute button. Uh, I appreciate the uh, presentation this morning. I found it very informative. Uh, but I think that, <coughs> excuse me, I think that Carrie has maybe answered uh, my questions or in response to Cherry, because, and she did reference 1990. Uh, and my question was that to say that I've only become aware uh, over the last 30 odd years uh, of autism. You know, it was never talked about, it was never written about. And uh, the question was, has it always been as prevalent as it is now? And, and was it known by other names or was it simply just wasn't uh, recognized? Um, and is there, is there any local research or even international research um, into the prevalence of autism, the, the current prevalence of autism right throughout the world? Is it? Could it be in any way connected to some aspect of, of modern living? Yep, thank you. Um, so who wants to pick that up, Kerry? Um, go ahead, Arlene, do you want to answer that one? Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, I think, uh, you know, yes, um, Autism and I was formed in uh, 1990 and, um, and basically because a number of parents started to read newspapers and about this this condition that seemed to somehow marry up with what they were experiencing in their own lives. Um, so that that so, but so autism and I is thirty years over thirty years old. Um, the awareness of autism um, uh, sort of began in uh, the UK and other parts of the world thirty years before that. So we we were late to the table uh, in terms of awareness. Part of that was I, I failed to do with our preoccupation quite naturally uh, during the years of the Troubles and a number of social and economic issues suffered as a result of that. Um, a lot of knowledge didn't come into Northern Ireland, a lot of professionals didn't come into Northern Ireland because they didn't want to risk it. Um, and one of the first jobs of Autism and I was to hunt uh, headhunt throughout the world to bring um, experts in autism over here to speak at conferences. So we've had a long-standing interest in training and expertise and research. Um, as to the question regarding research, I hope that answers your question, Alan. Um, um, you know, so, yes, and I think there it was. There's, there's been a checkered history with regard to autism. There have been a lot of people in the early days that wrote very harmful pieces of work that uh, autism was caused by parents who couldn't bind, bond with their children and all this sort of stuff. So we came out of that, came out of that dark period, got a bit of uh, sensible information and, uh, and moved, moved, moved forward. Um, so we've been building up the expertise, but there's been a legacy of neglect 
uh, in terms of knowledge, which I've referred to, but also in terms of funding. And the Autism Act uh, in 2011 was the first time that the government here was mandated to count. And without counting, you can't plan. And that's a constant theme throughout our discussion this morning. Um, and that's about measuring, because you can't you can't allocate resources without knowing what the need is. And that's about counting. That's about measuring. And the Department of Health and the other departments have gotten away with not um, implementing the Autism Act as a cross-departmental piece of legislation, which they're all obliged to implement um, because they, they have not been adhering to the, um, you know, operationalizing that counting, what that actually means in resource, resource terms. Um, the prevalence, the research into prevalence, yes, there's been a lot, and, and, but I think Kerry has addressed that uh, previously, um, and I defer to her um, on, on, on that. But I, like I've, in the past, I've been at conferences, and um, at one stage, South Korea had the, the highest prevalence rates. But yes, I think it's important to note that... Um, one of the main impacts of the Autism Act uh, in 2011 was to require the Department of Health to publish annually prevalence and incidence rates regarding autism. Unfortunately, they base that upon uh, school census figures still, although they're because the, the health and social care trusts, until um, the Autism Act and after the Autism Act in 2011, they... I know the clinicians were having to do a manual count because the IT software was not adequate um, and, you know, to take on board the information regarding diagnosis and to um, make that uh, data available for planning. Um, so at the moment, the prevalence, um, annual prevalence report, this was published by the Department of Health as the lead department, um, is focusing on children. The Autism Private Members Bill uh, seeks to widen that to adults, and um, and, and as has been referred earlier, the the, the autism uh, private members bill seeks to strengthen and address the um, uh, well seeks to strengthen the the autism act because um, of um, it, it basically the the private members bill has sought to identify the obstacles which have prevented the implementation of the original existing act. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. And going then to Carol uh, Nikhilin. Carol, go ahead, please. Guilds and knowledge in your own going advocacy for um, children, adults, and indeed their families. Um, my own experience in Belfast has been one of frustration going through the journey um, with some of the children, well, with their families. And uh, it would appear to me um, that the multidisciplinary teams in Belfast are having difficulties retaining staff in relation to autism diagnosis. So, for example, it used to be the Child Development Clinic Um who were leading services and now it's the psychological um, specialties. Um, and the other issue for me, I just want your own comments on this, that in relation to the autism diagnostic observation scale, that assessments have been 
postponed so many times, and particularly since COVID, that um, it's just causing a massive backlog and a massive uh, delay. I am delighted that under fives can be assessed face to face, but in your opinion, and I appreciate getting a diagnosis is just part of the journey, but I mean, it is by far the most pressing issue that families are coming to me as an MLA on um, at the minute. So I just want your own comments on that. Um, yeah, you know, as was said throughout this, um, the diagnosis waiting times are completely unacceptable. And before the pandemic and because of the pandemic, it's exas exasperated that even further. Um, and yes, we know that, as I said earlier, that there's an awful lot of um, practitioners that are leaving um, the public sector and moving into private sector and setting up diagnosis clinics. Um, and that expertise is, is being lost, maybe, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but at the minute, we know the trust don't have the capacity to be able to fulfill these um, waiting lists. And we need to know the, the reason for that. And that's really why we came here today to speak to you about that. And obviously to get your, hopefully your support with this private members bill that will be coming through as well. Um, but yes, we know that there needs to be um, a lot of investment in particular in the Belfast Northern and Western Trust. But Carl, we really want to know as well why there's such differences between those three trusts compared to South, Southern and Southeastern, why the waiting lists are so short there, and why there's less children being diagnosed there as well overall. Yeah. Um, Percentage-wise, it, it confuses me, um, and there's no real answer that we've got about that. I think it's something that definitely needs to be investigated. Um, but yes, we totally understand the pressures that the parents are under to then seek a the likes of a private diagnosis because they just can't wait two years. And that case study that I was talking about, that parent whose child was three was about to start nursery in September. And she needed to be able to tell the nursery work, workers, you know, how to support the child, blah, blah, whether he was autistic or not. She, she wanted all that confirmed. She went ahead and borrowed money off her family and friends to get that diagnosis. So, yes, um, I, I totally understand all the issues that you guys are all listening to, I'm sure, on a daily basis. But as you said, as well it's only the start of the journey and the real the thing for me would be the backup um service the support service after diagnosis and how we support the entire family as well as that child or adults he has autism too yeah and Ter, the other issue is that i mean i know why you're here for autism and we all appreciate that but it's the same um gap and the same um, pattern and waiting list, even for things like occupational therapy, um, care pack, well, not so much care packages, mental health. Uh, in Belfast, the inequalities and disparities are getting wider. And there are a number of former health and social care staff who are now working for the private sector. And, there, and it isn't just about money. It's about terms and conditions. It's about respect, it's about teamwork, and it's also about, um, well, it's capitalism. You know, they've seen a market, people have left, and there's, you know, it's from former staff, it's less hassle working for the private sector, and that shouldn't be the case. That's a loss for us all. But the issue for me is, um, in this, and Jerry touched upon it, um, health and social care, particularly for working class families, particularly those in multiple areas who live in multiple areas of deprivation, can't afford 
uh, to pay for healthcare, can't afford to pay for autism diagnosis, and they shouldn't have to either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as well as asking us about the waiting lists, um, what other discussions, and I, I know that you mentioned the executive at the start, but what other discussions have you had in relation to closing that disparity? Um, because that's, that's a pattern that's been there for too long, and it's a pattern that's going to continue unless the waiting lists in particular are really physically grasped. And so I'll just leave that with you. Um, could I? Yeah, I go ahead, me? Arlene. Go ahead. Um, I think one of the one of the saddest things um, is that, and, and again, um, it's highlighted in the report that, um, that uh, it's a broken promises report. Um, it's the fact that the, the Department of Health have not reached out. They have, you know, over the seven-year period of the first autism strategy, they failed to engage with the autism voluntary sector. Um, you know, there's a whole untapped resource about working with the community and voluntary sector that has been totally ignored by, by the Department of Health. Um, now, there's engagement with the trusts, um, and Kerry and Kelly can talk to you more about that. Um, but certainly strategically in terms of leadership and ownership and rolling out a plan that can best manage scarce resources, the failure lies at the Department of Health. And that's what um, the Autism Private Members Bill hopes to address. It would have been easier if the Department of Health had worked in a cross-departmental manner you know, because this is not, not just a, a responsibility of the Department of Health or the Department of Education. You know, autism is a lifelong condition and everybody needs to chip in to do their bit. Um, you know, so that, and that, that hasn't happened. Um, so with a lack of ownership, a lack of leadership, um, you know, we are where we are now in a worse position than... I'm not saying things would have been perfect by any means, but um, the evidence that they have not... Uh, really tapped in to what the the voluntary sector um, you know can do I think is a criminal shame yeah. yeah thank you thank you Arlene yeah. Carol uh, is that is that you completed there Carol yeah thank you um, I don't have any other indication I just want to check with the clerk if he's received any other indication from members oh, no yes. Okay, well, listen, I want to thank each of you very, very, very sincerely. And, and this is a very, very important session, I have to say. And um, it's, it's a matter of huge concern. I have to say in, in, the, week, in the week that I was, that, that that motion was brought, that they brought to the Assembly, I spoke to hundreds of families and carers that week. And the pressure they are under is phenomenal. And I mean, the, the, the key thing that was emerging in terms of a theme was people fighting for services, battling to survive. It was all that type of language where people are really at the at the end of their tether. It is, I think, uh, significant that this this session is taking place within Curers Week because as well as the impact on the individuals who may have autism, there are clearly a host of Curers out there who are also being let down as a result of this. So it's an issue we are very deeply concerned about and um, I, I know that Pam is, is bringing forward that bill. The committee have also asked that there would be an executive focus meeting and a dedicated meeting and a health summit in relation to waiting lists. And I think it's vital that autism waiting lists are included as part of that uh, urgent consideration and 
cross-departmental executive approach that is going to be needed to deal with the very, very many uh, issues that are arising, not only, as you have very eloquently stated today, from the difficulty in getting a diagnosis, but in what follows in terms of service for that diagnosis, and indeed, what supports are being provided while awaiting diagnosis. That's another very important issue. So I want to thank you, panel, for coming along. I want to thank you for, for bringing this issue over 30 years ago, as you said, too late here in the North, and for continuing to advocate and for continuing to push for those services. And it is a matter of regret that we still are where we are in, in terms of difficulties, but you have certainly played your part, as have, as, as have other people out there who are advocating uh, on behalf of the, pe the people they represent. And I, uh, I want to acknowledge and thank each and every one of you. So thank you for your attention this morning. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. Okay, members. Um, anything, uh, anything there further on that before we move on? We're, we're uh, with quite a full hectic schedule this morning, but is there anything that members want to raise at this point before we move on? No, I think members are content. I think that's a useful session there. Um, so members, I'm going to move on now to our next session, which is uh, our further consideration of evidence in relation to the health and social care bill. So we're receiving a departmental briefing on this and department officials are here today to brief the committee on the proposed new future planning model, which will follow the closure of the health and care board, uh, health and social care board, and to respond to issues raised by stakeholders in relation to the bill. I refer members to a copy of the draft framework at tab 8.1 of your pack and to the department's response to issues raised by st stakeholders at tab 8.2. I can advise members that the examiner of statutory rules has completed her report on the delegated legislative powers contained in the bill. A copy of the delegated powers memorandum is at tab 8.3 and a copy of the examiner's report is at tab 8.4. So I'd now like to welcome to our meeting this morning, Ms. Martina Moore. Martina is Director of Organisational Change within the Department of Health. Can you hear me okay, Martina? I can, Chair. Can you hear me? Yeah, hearing you there fine. Yeah. Thank you. We're joined by Mr. John Miller, uh, who is the Bill Team Manager in the Organisational Change Direction uh, Directorate within the Department. Uh, good morning. Uh, good afternoon, John. Uh, can you hear me okay? I can, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. And Mr. Paul Kiavana, uh, once again, who is Director of Planning and Commissioning in the Health and Social Care Board. Can you hear me okay, Paul? Yes, good afternoon, Colin. Yeah. So listen, thank you and, and welcome welcome all of you back. And I will go straight to um, presentation if I can ask you to go ahead and brief the committee and then we get to members' questions and answers. Please. So okay. I'll go to I'll go to yourself, Martina, if you want to outline how you're going to, to brief and then we'll take it from there. Thank you, Chair. Um, I'm going to just start off by briefing on the, the planning model and then John's going to pick up on the issues around the bill, if that's okay, if he's off. So if, yeah, if I can just perfect. start then. Yeah, okay. So uh, thank you, um, Chair, and obviously members for the opportunity to be here today. Um, obviously, we're aware our committee has been very keen to see that detail on the, the proposed planning model. And I know Minister wrote to you on the 26th of May with that copy, so I hope you found that useful. Um, so this morning, I'm going to provide you with a brief outline of the background to the project, the work that we've undertaken, obviously, to develop that framework, and what really the model is proposing in terms of how we plan and manage services in the future. 
Um, in terms of background, I mean, we all know obviously from the various reports that we do need to transform how we plan our services to meet the needs of our growing and changing population. Fundamentally, as we all know, our population is getting older, people are living longer, and that brings that increased risk of longer term and the complex health conditions. And I know something that's been raised at the committee quite often recently, those health inequalities continue to persist in our society. And obviously we know that's against the background of the huge financial challenges and unacceptable waiting times. And these are all the challenges we were facing pre-COVID and they've just been further compounded by the pandemic. So as we are now looking to the future to ensure a sustainable system for Northern Ireland, we must look at how we plan our services. And that's really about meeting the needs of today's population, but also that of the future, you know, and really taking into account that change in demographic and placing that focus on prevention. So keeping more people well in the first place, early intervention, so getting more people seen early and treated earlier and obviously with fewer people needing hospital care so essentially getting the right care at the right place at the right time and as we know delivering together gives us that blueprint for transforming health and social care and it articulates the need for local communities and providers to come together to plan that integrated and continuous health and care based on population need always appreciate and I suppose it'll always be those services that we need to plan on a regional basis so really in line with that vision then minister approved the program of work at the end of last year it was to develop the plan and model and that it's really based on an integrated care system approach. So what that approach does is seek to harness not just the, the strengths of health and social care, but actually to look beyond our boundaries to what can be achieved when we work in partnership with vulnerable community, local government, other statutory partners, and indeed our service users. Integrated care itself is not a new concept, so it does already happen in pockets through the system, but rather than let it emerge on an ad hoc basis, or out of necessity rather than by design, we can take the steps now to put the systems and structures around this, this approach and really embed it as our normal way of working. Um, COVID, you know, as we mentioned, um, really did shine that stark light on the health inequalities that continue to persist in our society and the impact they continue to have. But it really also shown what can be achieved when we break down our traditional barriers and come together. And that's not just the game within health and social care, but when we work with our partners beyond to deliver against a shared outcome. So we must really embrace that way of working and we think now is our opportunity to do so. So in terms of our approach, we established a project board co-chaired by myself and Paul Kavanagh. And we've brought together wide representation from relevant policy and service leads within health and social care, but also from other sectors such as founder community, patient client council. And really key to that has also been our, our membership from representatives from the likes of local commissioner groups and ICPs who brought that experience from those other sectors to the table. And one of those work streams has been obviously focusing now on the development of the draft framework you have in front of you. So in terms of the framework, it sets out the blueprint for the establishment of an integrated care system in Northern Ireland. So at its core, it's about partnership and collaboration between sectors and organisation, obviously with a purpose to improve our health and well-being. It's actually about delivering services in a joined up way, so not in silos, not in isolation. And a key aspect is really all of those partners are involved and invested in delivering those improved outcomes together. It's actually also about autonomy, so it's enabling more local level decision making and it's giving those local areas more control over the planning and funding for the services in their areas. Um, the proposal is that the model will be underpinned by population health approach. So again, considering that whole life approach, so that's right from prevention, early intervention, through our primary, secondary, and obviously end of life care. And a population health approach really recognises those factors that are beyond our health and social care that impact on our health and well-being and really provides that circumstances to bring all of those partners together around the table to really understand the needs of their population and what they can collectively do to meet them. So local intelligence, evidence, data, lived experience will all be necessary to provide us with the information to identify what's needed most, where it's needed most and make sure it's delivered by the most appropriate sector organisation or professional. 
Um, so in terms of the framework itself, it was informed by the move of integrated care systems have been developed in other jurisdictions. And as I said, we've worked closely with colleagues in local commissioning groups and ICPs. But I suppose while we continually to look to those other experiences of those other areas, we have looked to design the framework to make sure that it works for Northern Ireland and takes account of our own specific needs. It's underpinned by the clear vision to deliver together to improve the health and well-being of the people of Northern Ireland and linking us into the programme for government. So that enabled population to live long, healthy, active lives. You'll see the document details sets of values and principles partners must adhere to. And they just reflect some of the key themes that emerged during the development process. But fundamentally, it's about the person. The person's the centre of the model. In terms of strategic direction, then it's proposed that the model is supported by a strategic outcomes framework. So again, that's that outcomes-based accountability and aligning that with the overarching 21-26 programme for government. The outcomes framework then will inform the work at each level of the model and convey the ministerial and departmental strategic direction in line with obviously the health and wellbeing priorities and needs of those populations. Again, we're looking at that informing it by both quantitative and qualitative data and really building on current knowledge from existing strategies such as making life better. And really going back to this local input, local intelligence is going to be key to this whole process. And particularly that link with community planning will prove critical. Really, when we're looking to identify and address those wider determinants of health and well-being and really put that greater focus on health improvement, early intervention, reducing health inequalities and delivering those services to those in need. Um, if you look at the framework, you'll see it reflects the different levels that exist within integrated care systems. But broadly speaking, there's regional and local levels to the model and obviously they're interlinked and dependent. So with the closure of the Health and Social Care Board, its staff will inform a new important group in the department and it's going to now be called the Strategic Planning and Performance Group. So that, that group will provide that continuity of business and retention of expertise in the system and obviously be providing that oversight and guidance to the development of the ICS approach. And work is now underway to ensure that there's clarity between what would constitute regional responsibility against what needs that local perspective. And while I suppose that regional level will obviously provide the relevant coordination and governance over the local ICS um, and obviously that planning and management of regional services, the heart of an integrated care system is really what happens at the local level. So that's where you see those collaborative partnerships between sectors and organisations and the framework details how they're segmented depending on population side. So what we've looked at is what we're calling area, locality and community. And if you do see the framework itself, you'll know we have five local areas, each covering the trust geographical areas. And what we're proposing is in each of those, an integrated partnership board is established. And that partnership board then brings all of those partners to the table to plan, manage and deliver service for their local population based on the needs. An important point really to make here is these are not trust partnership boards. Um, trust geography is a geography we're used to, but it's really essential from the outside. This is about partnership. And that's a message that really came through loudly from the consultation which took place back in 2015-2016. Um, just to note, the framework details the minimum required membership of the groups to ensure all key partners are involved. It doesn't preclude for any other organisation, professional or individuals being brought to the table, either on a full time or, or when deemed appropriate. And really what we're saying is that's for each area to decide, but what we want to set out is the minimum we would expect to see. And really those boards then will have the responsibility for planning and managing those services in their area that meets the needs and priorities of their population and delivers against those high level outcomes set by the system. So really making the best use of their collective assets and resources. And to do so then they're supported by locality and community groups who are best placed to deliver those on the ground changes and provide the local intelligence and expertise on what those needs are. Um, the partnerships boards can't work in isolation. So as well as their alignment and interaction with the regional instructions, we want them to work collaboratively together 
where it's um, obviously appropriate and beneficial to do so. And obviously the experiences of existing systems and initiatives such as LCGs and ICPs have and will continue to build upon the design of that. Um, I have mentioned a number of times I know the importance of partnership working in collaboration. It's imperative that we take this opportunity to strengthen our partnerships and develop new ways of work that we know results in a better experience for our, our population and a better service for our po population. And I suppose in this room, it, Northern Ireland is not a large place and there's a lot happens. So what we're really doing is working to ensure that we don't create um, duplication in the system, but that we don't replicate existing structures. We don't want to repeat what's being done well elsewhere. We simply want to support those efforts and build on what is working well together. And the emergence of the community plan and partnerships is an example of where we can come together in a more cohesive and joined up way. Community plan and partnerships do have a wide breadth of partners already involved and engaged and our model is really looking to how we can work and align with them in a way that works best for everyone. Uh, we know partnership working is not new, but it does require leadership and support. Working across boundaries and sectors sorry, is not easy and it will require us to think differently about how we do things and our behaviours and our culture. And really to get that sense of trust and equality and parity between partners will be key. So what we're going to do is look at ways we can support those changes through the likes of training and development. Um, you know, documents, guidance, frameworks and all of this are absolutely key and fundamental and, and as said, totally necessary. But really at the end of the day, it'll be down to all of us and the actions that we take to deliver against the vision, you know, the values and the principles that we've set. What I would say is the development of a fully functional an integrated care system is complex and it's going to take us some time to develop and um, the model so in the first instance will operate under existing governance and accountability arrangements and funding albeit reflecting the changes from the forthcoming closure of the board so there'll continue to be the need for a mechanisms in place to monitor delivery of outcomes performance and financial accountability within those existing structures and organizations so trust will continue to be held accountable for example for their normal business and that strategic plan and performance script will have that key role in making that happen the new model will also they'll need those similar requirements moving forward. And if you notice from the document, we'll place some of those on the grips from the outset, such as development of partnership agreements, decision-making frameworks, and obviously the need for, for plans and annual achievement and progress updates. Um, really, the vision for the model is for the local areas, those partnership boards, to have that autonomy of decision-making and funding and planning the local needs. But we do know funding can be a barrier. So it's really important that the system is supported by a funded model that supports the change and is clear and transparent. And we do know that will take us some time to do. We have started, but it will take time. But it really shouldn't stop us from moving forward now because we know from the people we spoke to in other areas and other ICS systems, but even from what happened in COVID, that what we can achieve when we do come together with a shared vision. So in that respect, we're going to look to explore opportunities now over the next few months of how we can work together in terms of funding and budgets within our existing arrangements while we work on the new funding model. Um, I suppose one of the things that has come up recently when you are looking at likes of governance and accountability is that it does lead to those questions about legislation. And, and as you know from the bill and the draft framework that there's no proposals at this point for any specific legislative provisions. Um, we have looked at what's come before and what's been done elsewhere. And I suppose Northern Ireland has an integrated health and care system in statute, which puts us in a different place from other jurisdictions. And um, we think it's a really important aspect that will actually give us a sounder basis to develop integrated care. But we think by not immediately placing statutory requirements around the model will give us the ability and the system, the ability to test what works and what doesn't and to respond to those lessons that we learn and, and be, be able to do so with agility and responsiveness. It'll give us the opportunity, we think, to evaluate and consider then what legislation may be required around that and what that would look like. 
Um, and that's not a new way of doing things, I suppose. In England, you might know there's the, obviously the white paper and the legislative proposals now to underpin ICSs, but that's only been developed after they've been up and running now for a number of years and really building on the lessons that they've learned through that. Um, but obviously the requirements of legislation must be given full consideration, but we just think in these early stages, the right approach would be allow the model to develop and really, as I said, inform what does work well. Um, sure, I know that was quite a, a run through there um, of the overview and there's more detailed information through the document. I suppose what I would say is in terms of next steps, we do intend to, to launch a consultation around that. The framework is just really a blueprint of what we mean. It's the vision for the future to help facilitate more informed and detailed debate and discussion, which we welcome. In the broad terms, there's still a lot of work to do on this and we really want to engage with all those involved really in that detailed design. I suppose it's just to take that opportunity to stress that this is the beginning of a process and we know as i said a fully integrated integrated sorry a fully functioning integrated care system so we would have that autonomy of funding and decision making to the local areas will will not have that in place for april 2022 it will take time to do that and um, but what we will have i suppose is some of the key elements we will have the local area groups in place the outcomes framework and we'll be working with those groups in terms of assessing their population needs to allow the development of those plans but in the meantime, we are working very closely with Paul and his team, not just in the development of this model, but making sure all necessary steps are being taken to ensure that service continuity come the closure of the board and the migration of staff. Um, so really in April 2022, while you maybe not see any significant difference at that point in how we plan our services, we will have put in those early steps and those foundations for this model and which allow us to build upon that then in, in the months that follow. So in respect to this, Bit, Chair, just to close, just to hope that the document itself and obviously our appearance here today will give you a clearer understanding of the vision that we're setting. But as I said, very much at the start of a journey. But I think it's one that we believe can really provide us with the genuinely improved way of planning our services. Um, and, and in that respect, I'm not sure, Chair Claire, whether you want to take message or sorry, questions on this or whether you want John to come in at this point on the bill. Um, yeah, I think we'll take John in and then we'll, we'll, we'll do the questions based on both. Or okay. all, or whichever is the case. So we'll bring John in. Thank you, Martina. Go ahead, John. Okay, Chair, Chair thank you. Um, uh, following the call for evidence and the subsequent evidence sessions, there were a few queries raised about the Health and Social Care Bill that, that I'd like uh, some time to address. Um, Martina's talked about the future planning, and I'm sure there'll be questions about commissioning. So um, the areas I would like to cover at this point are around consultation, uh, budget issues for pharmacy, safeguarding training for GPs and the rationale for, this, for the movement of staff uh, to BSO. So starting with consultation, um, some represent representatives giving evidence mentioned the lack of consultation. In terms of consultation on restructuring, you'll have been advised previously that public consultation was conducted from December 2015 through to February 2016, with the consultation report published in March 2016. That consultation received over 180 responses from a wide range of stakeholders and largely affirmed the need for change with a number of responses highlighting that whilst closing the board um, will not cure all the issues facing our system, having more effective structures would allow for a better focus on resources and support the system to operate more effectively and innovatively. The need for change once again was broadly welcomed in the responses to the call for evidence and the oral evidence sessions that you've had. Uh, there were a number of responses to that consultation which expressed concerns on how, how uh, services will be commissioned in the future. 
Martina has provided that information on the plans for future commissioning and to reiterate some high level points. A programme of work has already started that will look at how services could be planned and managed differently. The consultation responses will be considered in the context of this work. This work is seeking to develop a new way of planning services, which you will have already heard, are based on integrated care approach, which is founded on partnership and collaboration. Engagement with stakeholders will be key to this process. There is broad representation from various sectors on the, on the project board and officials have been engaging with various stakeholders at this early stage of development. Engagement is key in going forward, but it's important to highlight that while things are changing, some things will remain the same. For instance, staff terms and conditions for those staff uh, moving from the board upon its closure. Uh, engagement channels with board staff regarding closure of the board includes representative bodies attending regular staff side forums. The staff side forum has been meeting regularly since 2018. And NIPSA, Unison, Unite, the RCN and the BMA are all represented at that forum. Uh, an external engagement plan is also in place. Existing communication channels such as the, the, the board's eZine and the board's website are useful means of stimulating engagement. And in addition, meetings with key stakeholder groups are already being arranged. For those areas that are changing, consultation will be carried out on individual matters like future planning already mentioned by Martina and the independent appeals process for primary medical contractors that will be developed. In terms of that consultation, we would hope to be able to develop a paper to go to minister in the very near future. And that consultation will also go out, um, hopefully in the number next number of weeks. Um, uh, unfortunately, it may go out over the period of uh, recess, but we'll make sure the paper gets to the, uh, the committee in advance of that. Uh, these consultations will help to inform debate and encourage wider engagement. The consultation will seek the views of key stakeholders and help to broaden the awareness and understanding of what we're seeking to do. Moving to community pharmacy, uh, another issue raised by CPNI during the oral sessions was a possible risk of budgetary and service provision being delegated to trusts. The analysis of consultation responses also showed a concern, particularly around the proposal to give trusts more responsibility. Sorry. Sorry, uh, uh, around giving more responsibility for planning care in their area. The bill does not provide any additional responsibility for trusts. There are also no plans for the budgets of independent contractor services to go to the trusts. The need for a stable and sustainable network of community pharmacies is recognised. Work is ongoing both with CPNI to develop a roadmap uh, to long-term future for the community pharmacy services. The work underway on the future planning model will see the rollout of an integrated care system model which will be underpinned by a population health approach, aiming at planning and delivering services that will meet the health and well-being needs and priorities of the population. Moving on to safeguarding training for GPs. Again, um, GP representatives raised this um, at one of the oral evidence sessions. Um, the bill was seen as an opportunity by some to clarify the lines of responsibility for management and training and safeguarding at primary care level. However, this is outside the remit of the bill. The objective of the Health and Social Care Bill is simply to give effect to the decision to close the Health and Social Care Board. With respect to training uh, in terms of safeguarding, 
As independent contractors, GPs are responsible for keeping their own personal and professional skills up to date, including safeguarding as part of their continuing professional development. Further, the other issue that was raised was about representation on the safeguarding board. It is our understanding that the BMA represents doctors, including GPs, on that board. And finally, for now, rationale for the, the staff of the, the board moving to the BSO. As mentioned at earlier evidence sessions, when the board closes, the former board staff will continue in the main to undertake the same functions, albeit they will be directed by a senior civil servant within the department. They will become part of the new strategic planning and performance group. With this move, there will be no fundamental re-engineering of the processes. In determining the operational model to be introduced upon closure of the board, extensive analysis and engagement took place across the HSE to determine the optimum approach. Amongst the key considerations taken into account were the need to deliver on the objective to close the board, transfer the responsibility of its functions to the department, to make best use of the skills of the staff, to mitigate against the risk to service delivery, and to have flexibility to allow work on a new way of commissioning services to evolve. The hosted model where staff are under the instruction of the department, but whose human resource issues remain managed by BSO was deemed to be the best solution in ensuring the expertise of the board staff was fully utilized, enabling them to retain their HSE terms and conditions whilst also allowing the work on a new planning model to be brought forward. In terms of the bill, a clause within the bill, that's clause three, places a duty on the department to make one or more schemes for the transfer of the board's assets and its liabilities. Schedule two contains details about what must be provided in any scheme under this clause. The content of schedule two as it relates to transfer schemes is not new or novel. Very similar provisions are evident in the health and social care reform Northern Ireland Act 2009. The 2009 Act provided for the dissolution of a number of health bodies and the transfer of those staff, other assets and liabilities to a number of new bodies at that point. And before making a scheme, the department must consult either employees or their representatives. Um, I hope this has been helpful and uh, along with Martina and Paul, happy to take any further questions. Okay, thank you, John. And Martina, just checking with you, are you, is that, is that the presentations and will we go on to questions now? Yeah, please, Chair. Yeah. Okay, well, listen, thank you very much for that. And uh, that is that is very interesting. I have to say, I have, I suppose, raised the point before, but you wouldn't move out of your old home till you've seen what the new place was like. And in that respect, I think actually, you know, you have highlighted the fact that actually this is a, a new build and a self-build. And we are today getting a look at some of the plans and some of the some of the draft the draft plans. And I have to say, there's an awful lot in that that that, that does uh, seem very good and positive, and I do welcome that. Um, I suppose the issue still remains um, a bit uh, along the lines of uh, that until such times as there's something solid in place, you know, they are only plans. I suppose not to not to undermine them, but just in terms of how they interact with the closure of the of the of the board. And I do understand what you're saying that this legislation is around. Um, the closure of the board, and I know that John has touched upon that as well. However, in terms of, and I welcome your 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 mention of ambition and plans and, and how that, so I think for me, in terms of the committee's scrutiny, we would want to see maximum ambition in terms of how we use this opportunity to yeah. put in place the correct the correct elements. So I think that remains something that we will we will look at as to how, 
as to how that commitment is is a uh, included with 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 providing the ability and I recognize the the issue of consultation and getting input into all of this so that's that's another valid element um of that I want to focus a wee bit then in terms of the integrated cure system which you have outlined and, and talked about there Martina and that system would require a would need to be driven sort of from top down and bottom up and yep. uh, you know so that you would have both elements of that involved the department has invested i know considerable time and resources since 2013 in building and developing the integrated care partnerships throughout right across the region and those already involve gps community in some degree health charities trusts uh, service users and pharmacy for example does the department intend retaining and building upon the ICP experience to develop that middle tier, which would act as a bridge between the sort of uh, the, the bottom, the grassroots, the bottom down, the bottom up and the top down. Yeah, so th that's what we're looking at the minute, that locality level, as you say, and what we're saying is that needs to be built upon a, the experiences already. So what we actually have ongoing at the minute is a piece of work looking at what needs to be at that locality. And what we're doing is working with the, as you say, the current ICPs again, very much about their experience to date and what's worked for them and where perhaps there's been limitations. So we're, we're trying to look at how we can build on that experience. So we do have actually somebody from it's from the, the board itself. They would have an ICP team who's actually come out and doing a very focused piece of work for me at the minute around locality. So what what is it we need at that locality level? What is it we have with our ICPs? And as you say, what's the gap that we need to bridge? And she's actually gone out and interviewing cross sections of people in that at the minute just to take a wide range of views in that so she can bring a paper back to us now, I think, at the start of July, so we can actually start to look at that. But that's very much, as you say, let's build on what is working well. But again, where perhaps they felt those limitations, what were they've been and what we need to do to actually make that? Because I think it goes back to what you said. This bill does provide a very unique opportunity to do things differently and to really just to start to, as you said, learn on the lessons from the past. And I think it's something that we need to really invest. And when we are in the team invested in, in capitalizing on the opportunity, but as you say, working with those experts across the system and beyond, really engaging with the people and what matters to them. Yeah, Paul, you're looking in there. And Colin, maybe just to, to add to that, um, I mean, ICPs were, were designed to be, I suppose, working at the cool face, uh, developing these integrated care pathways, which were very much patient-centered. So their their purpose was to give so those GPs greater access to secondary care, to allow secondary care to develop sort of very close working with GPs so that actually if we could develop services within primary care with GPs, that that, that was our direction. The integrated care systems are a considerable step up from that. They're strategic, they're system-wide, they're about connecting with those sort of wider, wider partners. So I think ICPs are part of the engine room for, for the integrated care system, but I think there's there's also a lot more strategically that we need to be doing, including a much more comprehensive understanding of each population needs and, and a much more direct connection between those population needs and then the services and, and the, the approaches that we need to take in each of our local areas. Thank you. And um, this this model taking population health and this model done well would and and will require significant culture change in terms of you know um, budgeting and and participation participation budgeting process and all of that there. If it's going to be successful in implementing better outcomes across 
So have you learned from examples elsewhere? And I know you've mentioned there um, England and Scotland and Wales, but are you looking at anywhere else more broadly across the world where this has been done in order to put in place things now that could help to sustain and develop this model? We are. Um, obviously, like you said, we've we've got England, Scotland, Wales, and obviously we've been speaking um, with the Republic quite a bit. We've actually um, more recently been looking at Canterbury, which is an area of New Zealand that's done this quite successfully and actually and that's some of the lessons um we've been trying to tap into what they've learned um as you said the key message coming from across the piece really through all of those areas including new zealand it's about culture as you said it's about it's about relationships and parity and it really does necessitate a shift in mindset that real as you said looking at that uh, that whole life approach and looking at the outcomes and actually looking at what everybody can bring to the table in that regard and, and the equal role that everybody can play in that. So right across, more recently, New Zealand, actually, was, there's a, a woman we've engaged in there who's, who's absolutely brilliant, I have to say, in explaining this, if I could bring her to you, I would like she can just, it, they just simplified it. They just stripped everything back and just brought it right back to, as they called, they've created a persona, I think, can't remember her name, something like Nora, and every decision, everything they do comes back to what impact does this have for her? And really looking at beyond, as they said, cotton widgets, are we actually making a difference? What's the difference we're making to the population? And as you say, those health inequalities, how are we tackling in those and how are we really starting to make a difference? So there is, we really have tapped in. I would say we've actually created what we're nearly calling the buddying system with West Yorkshire and Harrogate. So they've been up and running for about four years. So the same size population wise um, as Northern Ireland. And, and actually they, uh, the director there, he comes and speaks to our project board quite a lot as we're going through this process. Interestingly though too, they want now to learn from us because they don't have that integration of health and social care. And that's a struggle for them. Um, but you know, they said that investment upfront, as you said, in actually bringing these people together, but actually some kind of development and training for them in terms of this new way of working. Because if you look at what we're saying there, if you look at who's around that table, we're saying everybody has an equal say. And that'll be a shift for a lot of people around that table, you know, in terms of it's nearly like a let and go. So we're absolutely committed to investing in that. And that's a piece of work we're actually looking at at the minute, um, particularly around what's happened elsewhere and where they can actually give us some recommendations on working with the likes of the Leadership Centre then to support okay, everybody. And that's very, yeah, and, and that, yeah. that's very good and, and, and welcome as well. And, and I absolutely agree with you. And I actually am I'm pleased to see that level where, where you're saying there, we are looking at best practice across the world, but actually, why, why don't we lead the world in terms? Because yeah. you're right, we do have we do have unique challenges, but we also have some unique benefits in terms of the integrated system. And we need we know we need to transform and get this this health the 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 the, the pointed edge of health out into communities early yeah. early intervention community level. So that that's all very welcome. And then my my last question follows on from where you finished off there, Martina in relation to that whole issue of equality of arms. So obviously the trusts are going to be more centrally involved now in commissioning and the, and the primary care. So what are you doing to support and sustain and develop that community level and the integrated care partnerships to enable them to compete on equal terms and to, and to be able to share that, that power that, that, that we're hoping transfers down to communities in terms of their health needs going forward? Yeah, uh, and that's just, that's a piece of work we've started so we have been working as I said initially during these phases um, we've had had representation from voluntary community but I think it's fair to say and we all know this not one person can represent voluntary and community it's that diverse what we want to do now as we go out 
now in terms of the consultation is we really need to now get out into these areas, see what there is in those areas, because every area of Northern Ireland is different, as you know yourself, you know what one trust area has perhaps in terms of voluntary community set up, not another one will have the same. So I think part of this for us is going out to see what is there exist and then how do we support those areas, as you say, to come to the table and to feel that they're not just there as a voluntary person or a community person, but they're actually there with that equal say. And that's really important for us from the outset. So it, 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 at the minute it's early stages, but what we want to do, I suppose, was get this direction of travel. As I said, we have been talking to representatives, but we need to really then move this a step on as we're going out to consultation then and really get into the areas and help see what's needed and how we can support them to be yeah. to be an equal part. And I think that's something that's fundamental to this. We cannot have it really where somebody goes into a room and actually feels either they're not being listened to or they don't understand what people are talking about. You know, from, from the outset, we need to invest in this to make sure that we support them. And there's different ways we can do doing that. Sorry, I see Paul's got his hand up, but yeah, basically we'll look across. Yeah. And just quickly, Colm, we do have champions in this space. We have had people who have been involved in local commissioning groups in the past. We have people who've been involved in the ICPs, working with trusts and so, from the, so on from the community and voluntary sector. So we want to also draw on their experiences, find out how they kind of got up to speed because, you know, we do a lot of induction, yeah. a lot of learning as they go. So thinking about then what the experience has been in the past, learning from that, and also hopefully doing things differently based on that experience and using some of those champions too to support us and bringing other people yeah. up to speed too. Yeah, yeah, that integrated care partnership, bringing the local community thing forward and the local commissioning group applying that local democracy and input and knowledge, all, all, of, that is, yeah. all of that is valuable. Okay. Um, listen. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll go. To, I'll go to members there then to, to bring in members' questions. So I have an indication from Pam and then Paula. Oh, I think I have an indication from Pam. Actually, I'm not sure. I'll just check that. Pam, were you looking in for a question there? Okay. I'll come back. I'll come back to Pam. I'll go to Paula and then I know I have Carol. So I'll go to Paula first. Go ahead, Paula, please. <laughs> Thank you, Chair. It's really just to, to follow up on your last question there about the community partners. Um, when you look at the paper that you supplied, thank you, Pamela, for that, around the indicators of health and well-being, around smoking cessation, obesity and eating, emotional well-being, um, triggered by isolation, oral health, breastfeeding, etc. There, there's no, I, I was in the community voluntary sector for 19 years, but there's no um, body better placed than those community organisations in there. And as you said, Martina, there, there may be some differences in capacity, but there's some brilliant work that's going on and it's it's delivered at a fraction of a cost if you were to give it out to the private sector, for example. So I would really encourage um, that work around that. And, and the other um, aspect of this would be for the voluntary sector, like um, Chest, Heart and Stroke or the Stroke Association and the great work they do with rehabilitation, those people post-stroke um, or heart attack. So I'm just, uh, it's really just about a wee bit more details around how you would imagine that they could be properly commissioned. Um, I, I always hate the thought that in many ways they're selling bonds or they're taking money from this project to, to fund another project and scraping together the pennies for these projects that are saving the health service overall a lot of money in the long term. So just a wee bit more detail on how they're actually going to be properly funded going forward. Thank you. I suppose... <laughs> Paula, we're really, like I said, at the, at the early stages of this, I suppose the key part of this 
in terms of this model, what we would really envisage is that we want to build a funding model where we actually have that funding pot for that local area as a an ICS fund. So that would go to that integrated care system to to then allocate as it sees fit, depending on its population need. And part of that is actually about looking at what is it's needed for that population, but who's best to deliver on that? Because that doesn't necessarily always mean, as you say, that it's health and social care. Part of that whole life plan could be actually, as you say, some of those voluntary or community groups. So actually what we are needing to do is build a funding system that will actually more or less allow us to say, okay, Belfast integrated care system or, or Northern integrated care system, that's your funding pot. These are the, the, the strategic outcomes that we're looking for the system to deliver. Can you look at your population? And, we will, and we've got work streams now established in terms of data and intelligence and all of that to, to obviously support that. So here's what, what our intelligence tells us about what your population looks like. So can you now plan what you need to actually make that improvement that you needed in those areas collectively? But again, as I said, it's about not just automatically saying, well, that's the health and social care pot. So that's for health and social care. It's about looking across an integrated care system. And that will that will necessitate new funding models. And we think that's going to be quite complex for us to do. And that's why we're saying we know that will probably take us a bit longer. But that's the vision. And that's the thing we want to consult on, that that's the vision around that table, that that's a collective resource going in there to really make a difference to that po local population. I don't know, Paul, from a commissioning side, if there's anything. And probably worse, Paula, like you, I, I've spent half my career in the community of voluntary sector as well, but before coming from the health service. So I understand intimately the, the value that community and voluntary organisations bring to health and social care. I'm deeply committed as well to community development approaches. And I think in some ways, one, we have to say from the outset, the community and voluntary sector needs to be one, a key partner in, in the, the integrated care system. We also need to recognise, as Martina has said, that there are opportunities to do things differently rather than defaulting to we need to give more, the money to health and social care trusts. We need to think differently about what the community and voluntary sector bring to the table as well. And I think as well we need to say to the community and voluntary sector, how best do you want to be represented? Um, how do you, because as Martina says, no one person within such a diverse sector can really represent. So I think we've got to ask the, the, the give the sector opportunities to think about how it can be best re represented and also think about how we are going to be much more creative in being communicative and, and, and actually working with the sector. And that's also why we're embedding this with community planning as well. Community planning's already cracked some of this. I don't think they've got all the answers, but they've certainly got some of the answers and they're certainly ahead of us in some of these things. So I think that will also help us in terms of getting the intelligence right and drawing on all that experience. But as Martina says, we've also got to look at ways to do things differently and through the community and voluntary sector in the future. Thank you. And I suppose um, just to reflect on two sort of themes that have been emerging uh, during our evidence session. One was around the sort of specialist regional approach um, especially as we're coming out of COVID and, and some of the references today have been around this trust area and that trust area. So I'm just wondering how you're going to marry that together. Obviously, Belfast is a sector and that area is a sector. I'm just wondering how you're going to rule out that sort of need for regional centres where it's, it's possibly the best solution. And the other um, issue that was raised um, is around the role of the chief medical officer, chief nursing officer, chief medical officer, etc. How the teams around them could potentially be supported to make sure that um, the deficits are not just seen as people fill teeth, for example, but that they have got that broader sort of public health role just to see what you're going to be doing in terms of reconfiguration within the department around those two issues. Thank you. 
apologies, Paul. I, I lost most of that. I don't know, Paul, have you picked that? No, no I, I got it, Martina. Sure, sure I'll kick off. Um, I, I mean, I think it's, it's important to emphasise, Paula, as you know only too well, we have very specialist services which will continue to be provided on a regional level. We have then regional services which are sort of you know, coordinated at a regional level but actually are del delivered locally. But we want as much as uh, possibly ensure that we have sort of equalization of waiting lists and so on. I mean, things that the committee is, is very familiar with. And I think for us then, it's about thinking, so we're creating five local systems. We, we're really committed to the five local systems. But how are they, those five local systems going to work together at a regional level to ensure that we don't create all kinds of issues around sort of postcode differentials and so on. So I think our focus, I think over the next number of months, will be to think that through a bit more. And I think it also relates to, and I think, Colm, your very initial comments as well about it's top down and bottom up. And we all know that that's easy said, but it's a lot more challenging to do. But I think there's something about, you know, there needs to be a recognition that, you know, there are political priorities that we need to ensure are taken forward across the whole system but we also need to ensure that what we're learning on the ground from our population needs assessment from our delivery of services is feeding up as well so that the department minister and so on is getting a sense of what's happening on the ground and i think that kind of a sort of a, a cycle paula it, it again it is much easier said than done I, I would not underestimate the challenges of that but certainly that's where our head's at that's our commitment to trying to make this different and i think if we make that different it should mean as well that the things that are coming from the top down are actually already informed from the bottom up. So it should be a much more cohesive system, would be our hope. The, the, sorry, the other question was around the role of the chief medical officer. And the oh, other... sorry, sorry. And, and I think that it's kind of in that same space, Paula, about, you know, if we're, if we're doing the top down and bottom up, I think you, we, the, that should also include the kind of the needs and the priorities of, of the CMO, the CNO. I mean, I think as well, you know, they're very involved in this process of developing this model, as, as Martina knows. Um, and I think there's there's something about we've got to bring that professional expertise to bear across the system from the, the, those senior people within the department, indeed from our clinicians and our social care professionals, uh, and indeed from, from those people who are working in health and social care. This is about trying as much as possible to draw on the, the best evidence, the best practice that we're aware of, and draw on those very skilled people that we have within our health and social care system, within our community vol voluntary sector and so on, so that we genuinely can do, as Colin has said, you know, creating a system that is will be the envy of others rather than us always looking to others uh, to, to, I suppose, to learn from them. Thanks. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks, panel. Thank you, Paula. And I'll go to Carol Neekillen. Go right, uh, Carol Thank you, uh, Chair, and thank you, panel, for your presentation this morning or this afternoon. So, um, I mean, a couple of my questions may have been answered, but I don't think fully. So who appoints a regional group over the area uh, level integrated partnership board? And then who appoints the members of the area um, partnership board as well? That's one. Uh, it may be the Minister Perm that's one question. The other question I have, well, it's more of a comment, really. I mean, that you, you will know better than most that the regional disparity and indeed the inequalities are still uh, prevalent and, and they're evident on the community planning um, and the integrated care partnerships as well. So how are they going to be um, closed with um, the the 
the Dazzleish the Health and Social Care Board. And I know, um, you know, in relation to the consultation that happened in 2015 and closed in 2016, um, I mean, albeit very significant, but it was four or five years ago. Has there been an equality or will there be an equality impact assessment done on this process as well in relation to uh, those regional inequalities? Um, so, Chair, that would be my questions. Cormagad, Carol, and panel, please. Um, thanks. Um, so, in terms of the regional group, then the regional group is really what would have been, I suppose, the Health and Social Care Board. So, that's the Strategic Plan and Performance Group, but also the PHA. So, they will just, they will sort of have that regional role of coordination across um, the, those area integrated partnership boards. But I, what I should say, I suppose, like I said, the, the vision is that those areas would have the autonomy. I suppose the regional script's role in that is about quality of care. And I suppose is about, perhaps going on to your second question, making sure that in doing this, we don't actually end up creating inequality. So, you know, ha having that really across the system as a whole to make sure that the quality of care is maintained um, in terms of the area integrated partnership boards and, and where that membership comes from. There's obviously um, within that you'll see membership from within the system. So we'll need to look at that. One of the things we're now considering now during the consultation period is how we best, as you say, nominate. So there isn't actually a decision on that as yet. So we're looking at whether that copies the same sort of process as an LCG would have taken or whether there's perhaps a different way but we would hope to have that sort of secured and rounded up so when we do come out of consultation we can move on that very very quickly um, and I'm sorry your last point Carol I just missed the end of it so uh, sorry um, Martina it was around um, an equality impact assessment you know given given that the council the first consultation happened four or five years ago and knowing the regional inequalities that we have and indeed the inequalities in health and social care, what are we going to do to ensure that the services are you know, given to everybody at the point of need, please? Yeah. So in terms of this process itself, so as part of this, we'll do obviously all the required screening and we're doing that. We're starting all of that now at the minute to go out with that consultation. So we're doing all the equality screening. In terms of what you're talking about, health inequalities, one of the things we are looking at the minute and we have set up, I mentioned earlier, is um, a data and intelligent work stream. So what we're really looking to do in that is really pull in um, all of the data that we can. And that's not just again from health and social care because there's a wealth of data outside health and social care as well. So we're looking at our other partners to see where we can actually really start to build that picture. And as you said, that would allow us then to look at what those different inequalities are. And as you said, there may be disparities between areas. And that's fundamental to this because we need to be able to allow those areas Areas to plan based on those inequalities and based on, on the need and to make sure that we start to reduce those. So we do have a massive piece of work in this um, and we do know it's complex. Health and social care is, is, is actually a wash with data, so it is, but what we need to do is actually bring it together in a meaningful way so that we actually really do start to understand what it is. And a part of that is not just about data, it's the other side of it. You know, data can tell you so much, but actually it's what it's that interaction with those communities. So what that actually, what's behind the data? Do you know what it means to the people on the ground? Because, you know, figures can tell you one story, but you need to actually get in and speak to the people to see, well, what does that actually mean to you? And what are your priorities, I think, in this as well? You know, we can take the data and put together a list of what we think are the priorities for the system, but actually you need to engage with the people that's actually impacting to see, well, what matters to you. So 
we have a massive piece of work to do around that, but we have started and we have that work stream up and running because we want to be in a position at the end of this year to be able to, to really pull that together for these integrated care systems that we have that comprehensive knowledge that they can build on. Okay. But it's hard to screening screening all part of this, absolutely. So, yeah, but it's more the, the full quality impact assessment rather than screening. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we do. The, yeah, we'll do the screening, and then obviously the impact assessments will follow. And just briefly, then, Carol, and I think health inequalities is a key issue for us. It has always been a key issue for us. We have been doing work on that in the past. I mean, my work with local commissioning groups, for example, we've identified where you know certain conditions are more prevalent in in our in our urban areas, for example, particularly in Belfast and Derry. So you know there has been a a lot of work around, for example, respiratory conditions where we have high levels of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in Belfast and Derry and, and we've we've looked at actually targeted initiatives there but they're in pockets Carol and I'd be honest enough to say that what we've got to do now is if we're serious about population needs then we've got to understand our populations much more closely and begin to actually address those health inequalities and, and some of them relate to sort of urban poverty some of them relate to uh, rural isolation and so on and to be trying to strike those balances as well. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you for that. And I just want to check with the clerk if he has received any other indications there, uh, or is that is that the members complete for now? Clerk, can you just chair from members? Okay. So thank you for that. I think I think that I think that's all. Um, very very good in terms of direction of travel and all that i suppose my my concern around all of this is that none of none of this while it's all very welcome and it's good work and i do want to acknowledge and it's i think it's 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 in some ways exciting that that we have this opportunity now to to build on it but unfortunately none of it is on the is in is in the bill that we're we're dealing with and i know that this is and i know john that you dealt with some of the issues that have been raised throughout along the lines of that this bill is the scope of this bill is to close the HSC. Uh, but for me, it should have been or it could have been about replacing the HSCB, which would have been a much more um, a much more uh, clear approach in, in my mind. So how can how can we ensure that the committee and the assembly that, that there is commitment and, you know, buy in in terms of delivering on what are very, very positive messages? I mean, I suppose in terms of, of the direction of travel, I mean, as you know, Minister has obviously approved that, but we, we are actually a a programme work strand within the Rebuilding Management Board, which, as you know, Chair, obviously has those senior leaders from across HSC, and, and all of which has had a commitment and an approval of this as a direction of travel. Um, and I'm totally, and I know Paul is too, committed to actually delivering on this project. And as I said, a key part of that has to be consideration of the legislative requirements. I suppose one of the things we would just be saying is asking would be to, to allow that process to evolve and to see what actually works as opposed to perhaps putting something around it now that would maybe sort of pigeonhole us into a space where we can't learn from the lessons. But, you know, part of the process always has been and will be to consider. And that's one of the things we talk to other areas about as well. You know, where they've maybe used statute and where they haven't, and what have been the reasons, and really, I suppose, what's been the the experience from them from doing so. So it was really just about letting us, you know, sort of examine that in more detail, and really, I suppose, I think it's more going back to what you said at the start. I think there is a real opportunity here to to really do something, and, and it is exciting as well, and to really build something that could make a difference. And I suppose it's just to make sure that we just 
capitalize on that and really look to to do something that make a difference and as i said you know then perhaps look at what we need to put around it in terms of statute but there's a commitment i know within the department very much in terms of this as the direction of travel and as paul said we have engagement from right across the piece in terms of this even in our project board we have a commitment from all of our areas who sit on that and who obviously have responsibility then for delivering on it Okay. Um, okay. Well, listen. Thank you, and uh, very, very much want to uh, thank you all for attending this afternoon and for for presenting those those issues and for taking members' questions. And we will we will continue our, our scrutiny process of it. Um, but I want to thank you for your assistance this morning. All right, so yeah, thank you. Call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And, Bye. and take care. Yeah. All the best. Bye. Okay. Okay, members. Thank you for that. So I think we should move. Well, um, yeah, so we, we, we'll get that all captured and, and forwarded as part of the evidence session. So I think we should move on then to our item number nine, which is the uh, statutory instrument that's on, on front of us this morning. And it's referred to as the Health Security Brackets EU Exit Regulations 2021. So members, the next agenda item is an EU Exit statutory instrument. The minister has advised that he has agreed a proposal by the British government to bring forward regulations that relate to health, security, and health protection. The Minister's correspondence regarding these regulations can be found at tab 9.1 of the pack, and a copy of the regulations and the accompanying explanatory memorandum can be found at tabs 9.2 and 9.3 of the pack. So, uh, are members, have members any uh, issues that they wish to raise in relation to this item? I'm not. I'm not seeing members. However, I do want to raise myself with a concern around uh, how this all interacts. There does seem to be quite a um, England, Scotland, Wales centric approach to this. It doesn't, to me, give an awful lot of information at this stage around how we would interrelate or interact across the border here on the island and across Europe more generally. And I think that's something that that. Uh, when we first talked about all of these SAs, that that was one of the things that we were concerned about was how they would specifically relate to here. So there are there is some time available. So I wonder would members agree that we ask for a briefing on this item just to explore some of the potential issues that might arise? Would members be content? Yeah, thank you. Orlea is indicating. Um, yeah, no, it was just on the same point column and the... Um, I'm just conscious, so there wasn't much um, consultation locally around it. And if we were able to get, I don't know if it can be done, if we can get officials into the committee just to have a bit more, you know, detailed um, discussion on it or just a bit more information than, than what we got in our PECs. Yeah, I think it would be useful. So members content that we, we, seek a, we seek a briefing from officials in this. Yeah, thank you. Okay, members, moving on then to correspondence. There's a few items that I'd like to draw your attention to. Item 10.8 there is a request from the Alzheimer's Society to lay the Alzheimer's Society petition in the Assembly. Um, there is actually no provision in the, in the Assembly for a petition to be laid in the name of a committee or committee chair, but it can be done in, as, as a private member. Um, so I, I guess that sort of almost takes away a decision, but I just want to check, I suppose, with members are members content that I do that as an individual, as an individual MLA? Yeah. 
Thank you, members of consent. Thank you. Um, actually, before I go more substantively into correspondence, I wanted to come back to the issue that Alan had raised earlier in relation to the SL1. Um, so, Alan, we had asked, put, we had got your question put in writing and they have come back with a response to it, which I will read out here now for committee members. So the question was, is this SR directly related to or a legal requirement stemming from the protocol? Uh, is that fair enough, Alan, as far as the question? Yeah. So the response to that was, this SR is not being proposed as a direct result of the protocol on Ireland or the north of Ireland. These amendments relate to obligations on competent authorities and food businesses that are required to protect public health here in the north and to mechanical corrections of drafting errors and removal of redundant provisions. It is a Northern Ireland provision that would parallel equivalent food and feed hygiene and safety requirements in England, Wales and Scotland. So that's the response there, Alan. Are you content with that? I, I'm content with that response, Chairman. Thank you for that. Okay, well then I'll go back to the SL1 then for our formal consideration of the SL1, please, members. Um, So then it's it just a, so this is the SL1 in relation to food and feed hygiene and safety miscellaneous amendments regulations NA 2021 and our members content that the department makes the statutory rule. Yes, members are content. Thank you. Okay, resuming uh, correspondence items then members. So we've dealt with the Alzheimer's Society one. Um so members generally content to support the, the petition and that I will, I will bring that forward as, a, as an individual um, MLA. Item 10.14 then is from an individual advising the committee of the length of time her elderly relative has to wait for cataract surgery and seeking the committee's assistance. Um, do members have any comments in relation to that item? And would members, would members be content to forward that item to the department for comment and further information in relation to waiting times for cataract surgery. I did mention this in my remarks the, the other day in the, in the debate um, because I think it is in some ways a, it's a very worrying indication of where a waiting list might be at. Obviously, we're always lagging behind in terms of the information, but members content that we forward that to the department and ask for further information. Yeah, thank you, members. Item 10.15 then is from the Pharmaceutical Society. Um, I met with the Pharmaceutical Society recently and they raised a number of issues. I had flagged that to committee members and indicated that they would be writing into us. Uh, and their issues are in relation to reform in regulation, which have been highlighted in the papers provided there. Um, do members have any comments or would members be content that we write to the department seeking their views on the issues which the Pharmaceutical Society are raising? Yeah, members content. No other comment on that? No, thank you. Um, members, any comment or proposal on any other items of correspondence in the main memo? Paula? Um, thank you, Chair. It, it's to do with the issued correspondence with deadline. Some of this is, goes back to the end of July last year, and it runs to probably, excuse me, about two and a half pages there of, of lists of outstanding correspondence. Um, is, is there any way we can chase that up again? When I look at some of the issues that we, we are still awaiting responses on, I think it's quite disgraceful. Um, so I'm just wondering what the clerk can do to maybe try and chase some of those responses up. And I do appreciate 
that many um, in the health service are tied up with the, the pandemic, but a lot of this relates to the issues that they're dealing with. So I don't think it should take that long for a lot of these responses to come back. Yeah, Clerk, uh, can you can you pick up on that, please? Certainly happy to. to we we do it at a regular period, so we'll have a chat with the department again and make sure they're aware of the full list, um, and ask them to provide a bit of a timeline for when we expect to get some of the responses. Thank you. Okay. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I think that is that is that is a very very relevant. It is. It is disappointing. I have to say that that uh, information that the committee have sought uh, in relation to very very valid issues and, and issues of significant concern have been responded to in a timely fashion. So thank you for that, Clerk. Uh, are members otherwise content with the actions proposed on the correspondence memo? Yep, members content. So I'm going then to table correspondence, and there's a number of further items within that. So uh, the table pack contains a number of other items of correspondence. At tab 10.21 and tab 10.22 are copies of submissions from the Women's Policy Group and the NA Humanists to the Severe Fatal Impairment Abortion Bill. Following an issue with the submission being quarantined by email restrictions, the committee staff undertook some further investigations and identified these two submissions as also having been quarantined. So these the submissions will now be published on the committee's webpage alongside other submissions. And I do I know that Paula has already addressed the issue of, of one of those groups now, now addressing the committee, but do members have any other comments? And are members otherwise content to note? Okay, thank you. I refer you members to the draft forward work programme in at tab 11.1 of the, of the pack. Um, are members content to note the forward work programme? And then I have a couple of wee things just to flag up. Jerry, are you looking in there? Yeah. Yeah, Chair, more a question and a sort of clarity from yourself and the clerk. Um, I think we agreed already um, to, to ask for the RQIA to come in to brief us about the neurology uh, inquiry. So uh, just to, clar to clarify if we did that already and, and if we did, um, have we got a, an indication of, of when that, that might be um, likely to happen? Because I'm getting some queries from, from people, I'm sure as other members are. Um, so just a bit of clarification uh, on that, if we could. Um, Clerk, can you advise in relation to that item? Certainly. Um, as a first step, we issued a letter seeking, um, asking a few questions in relation to the reports they're undertaking. So we, we've got a response in from that um, just a couple of days ago. So it'll be in the pack for next week, um, at which um, members will have an opportunity to decide how it wants to move forward on that, and if it does want to get to schedule a briefing on it but that response has been received and will be in the packs for next week i'm happy to send that out to members now so well i can send them out a copy of the the response just for their information um but it will be in the pack for next week's meeting okay thank you um uh, before i go to any other business then i want to just flag up a couple of items there first of all that we will need to start earlier next week members at 9 a.m to accommodate the cdaw briefing and I would just maybe ask the clerk there to update the committee on that. And and uh, clerk, have you an update in relation to that, please? Yeah, it, just to, to flag up, Chair, that um, we did ask um, for CDAW to, to make a, a briefing to the committee on the um, SFIA bill. Um, they have came back to say that somebody will be available. 
the slight issue we're having at the minute is um, they're based um, in Algeria and therefore French speaking. So we're trying to identify interpreters um, at the minute. So we may need to actually postpone that for a week or two just to allow us time to um, put the necessary arrangements in place. Um, but I will keep members informed of that. Um, but it was just a complication that came through late yesterday afternoon that um, we have to find some um, interpretation services for that session. So um, we may need just to postpone that for a week or two. Okay, okay. Thank you. And um, and, and I just, I suppose that's that's a useful junction. I just want do want to thank the committee staff for all of the work they're doing in relation to all of these briefings and juggling things around and moving and putting in additional sessions. Um, Deirdre, Jonathan, Branton, Rushing, and I, I've probably left one or two out there, but there is a huge amount of effort goes on to, to, to try and keep all these. So I do want to extend our appreciation to the staff for that. Um, we also, members, have agreed that we will do an informal meeting in relation to the waiting lists issue in room 29 at 1 p.m. on Tuesday, on the Tuesday the 15th. So we look forward to seeing you all there. And finally, just to flag for members' awareness, uh, the the uh, the fact that we have our committee motion coming forward in terms of curing support on Tuesday, cures support, sorry, on Tuesday the fifteenth of June. So thank you for that. So I want to go there to any other business. No, Carl, you had indicated there was something there that you wanted to raise. Yeah, thank you, Colm. It was in relation to the. The variant and just in terms of getting the briefings and stuff like that but i did raise it earlier at the start and i know we agreed to try and find out but i i just think that even as a matter of course that you know see when particularly things like this happen and i appreciate the executive nulls on the day and they need to be brief first but there should be almost a natural um trans transfer over to the health committee given that we're responsible for scrutinising. Another thing is, I'm sure the Minister doesn't want us hearing what's going on from the media either. Um, I just don't think it's good enough, to be frank. Um, even if I had been a Holton response or something, um, and I would say that about any, um, I've been there myself. But um, but definitely in relation to this Delta variant, um, you know, we, we need to get something back from the department today if it's at all possible. Yeah. And Carl, you also indicated something about the detail or about a report into some of the issues that you wanted to? Yeah. So, I mean, the the whole thing around um, the car home in Clifton House um, was for me, like, uh, I mean, you dealt with during a pandemic and, you know, I dealt with, I'm sure others did as a constituency MLA. But there are some very shocking allegations in that. And I really would like to send that article to the department for commentary um, uh, because, uh, you know, it it almost suggests, if it does not suggest, that um, vulnerable patients um, were transferred, staff were put at risk, patients were put at risk. Um, and I, I think, you know, even in terms of social justice, there does need to be a response from the department, but there also needs to be a response, particularly in terms of MLAs, other political representatives, but more importantly, patients and their families. Um, so I would like to say something on that as well, Chair, and thank you for your indulgence. And I think, I think in light of the fact that that issue is likely to have 
implications and learning and concern right across more widely than than Clifton House? Would members be content that we we uh, forward that for comment to the department? Sorry, I said I I said Clifton House. It's Clifton Nursing Home. Clifton House is a charitable organisation. Um, so not get those confused. Okay, thank you. So members content with that? Yeah, thank you. Any other business members? No, nothing indicated. So then I'll just go to date, time and place of our next meeting, members, which will be, our next formal meeting will be on Thursday, the 17th of June at 9.30 a, at 9 a.m. via video link. So thank you, members. Thank you, Chair. Thank you.